0: Well he can't be racist on account of his color. That's what that is, and a Hispanic is not a color. I mean, but that's just adds to the confusion. I mean it's the same way that all you know, a whole bunch of white people now have gone on the Indian reservations and they run into casinos and calling themselves Indians. They just put on some feathers and that's it. Right, right. Yeah
1: the number of people who identify as Native American on the U.S. Census has soared in recent years by 86% from 2010 to 2020. That is a much bigger jump than can be explained by birth rates alone. It's totally clear that a lot of people who are claiming Native status now did not before, which raises concerns in Native communities about why people are doing this and what it means for their own identities. Sam Yellowhorse Kessler from NPR's Code Switch podcast
2: explains. Joey Clift is a comedian. He's an enrolled member of the Cowlitz Indian tribe. And because he's indigenous, he finds himself in a lot of conversations like this.
3: A friend of mine was posting on Facebook about a protest against the Washington, D.C. NFL team a few years ago. And somebody commented on the post saying something to the effect of, like, I just got my DNA test in the mail, and it turns out I'm 1 16th Indian, and I think the team name is fine. So everybody, lay off.
2: So what did Joey do? He made a short film about this sort of thing
3: called... Telling people you're Native American when you're not Native is a lot like telling a bear you're a bear when you're not a bear. The title is uh, 24 words long. It's basically a Fiona Apple album title of, uh, of short film titles. It's a, an animated comedy short about a lot of just like weird microaggressions that like native folks run into in day-to-day life. If you tell a bear you're sixteenth bear, but you don't know what kind of bear, and you've never
4: bothered to research your bear culture, and yet you think you have more right to an opinion about bear issues
2: than the actual bear standing in
4: front of you, you're going to get mauled by that bear. Ah! Ah!
2: Practically every Native American has run into someone like this, who says that they got a DNA test to prove they're indigenous, or that they have a distant ancestor who was supposedly a Cherokee princess. And there are words for people like this, pretendians or wannabes. High profile instances that come to mind are Elizabeth Warren, who claimed Cherokee identity, but has since apologized for doing so, or Andrea Smith, an academic who also claimed Cherokee identity, but could not provide proof of her enrollment in the tribe. She claims her native identity is legitimate. And that's not even mentioning people
0: playing Indian on screen. I too seek the Windigo, Butch Cavendish. I was prisoner on the train. The way coyote stalks buffalo.
2: Most people will tell you that race is deeper than skin color or blood ties. Joey Clift describes it like a spectrum, where he sees some people as indisputably Indian on one end and complete fakes on the other.
3: But then there's definitely like a gray area in the middle of people who uh, maybe are involved in the culture, are native biologically, but are not an enrolled member of a tribe um, for various reasons. Maybe there are people who are Native but don't speak their tribal language, um, like myself. Um, There are people of all different skin tones that are authentically Native.
2: According to the census, the Native American population in the U.S. has grown from 552,000 in 1960 to 9.7 million in 2020, a growth of over 1,600%. Cersei Sturm is a professor of anthropology at UT Austin. She wrote a book about the subject called Becoming Indian, She lays out a few possible reasons that more people are claiming indigenous identity who didn't previously. One possibility that's not so sinister is that Native people who once felt pressured to pass as white don't feel that way anymore, and the census reflects that. The other possibility? People who lean on that distant ancestry or that DNA test and claim a tribal affiliation, even if they've never identified that way before.
5: I never ran into anyone where I felt like they were overtly lying, you know, and fabricating this in order to get something, right? It doesn't seem to be that instrumental. I think that most of the people who are engaged in this process of claiming think that they are reclaiming.
2: So why do people want to be Native? Sturm says that many of these race shifters, as she calls them, cited spirituality as an important factor.
5: So everything that they associate with you know, white life as being like modern and alienated and not having culture, right? These these things that are associated with whiteness, the near opposite is what they're finding in indigeneity, which is that it's culturally rich and it's being part of a community and there's a
2: spiritual foundation to it. Kim TallBear, professor at the University of Alberta and author of the book Native American DNA, agrees, though she adds another possible explanation. I think there is a deep desire to disown complicity in the settler project.
6: I think people don't want to feel the historical guilt for living on stolen land. And I'm not saying they they are obviously or explicitly thinking these things. I think a lot of this
2: stuff is subconscious. TallBear says that when Pretendians rise through the ranks as thought leaders and spokespeople for indigenous communities, they produce knowledge and artwork that is not based on lived experience as indigenous people, as tricky to define as that is. And she says that all of this is essentially an extension of colonialism.
6: They stole our children. They stole our land. Now they are, they have stolen our representations, cultural artifacts. They stole indigenous bones and blood to do scientific research
2: on them. All of these things are entangled. Now, keep in mind, practices in the U.S. and Canada, like Indian boarding schools and the adoption of Native children out to non-Native families, often complicate Indigenous identity. So that leaves some individuals in a difficult spot. People who have an ambiguous relationship to a tribe and want to identify as Indigenous, but wonder if they can do so in a way that is honest with themselves and others, and in a way that won't make them pretendians.
7: I mean, I was encouraged to embrace it. Nobody told me to, you know, maybe take five, ten years to ask questions and explore and kind of observe. Justin Brake
2: is a Canadian journalist who wrote about his struggle to connect with his First Nation roots. He only learned of his Mi'kmaq ancestry in his mid-twenties, during a time when applications for tribal enrollment for a new band of the Mi'kmaq opened up. His family applied, and he got his acceptance letter in the mail
7: soon after. It's embarrassing for me to say now that I had no frame of reference, no understanding of the significance uh, politically, culturally, historically of what was happening and what I was bound up in. However, I guess I was thinking critically and en- or skeptically enough to say that I'm not 100% comfortable with this. So he set out to learn about
2: Mi'kmaq history and culture, to figure out where he stands in relation to all that. He started going to powwows and building friendships with members of the community, some of whom were on the same journey he was. And he had honest conversations about his identity and his relationship with Mi'kmaq culture. It wasn't easy. It required him to seriously consider whether he could, in good conscience, call himself indigenous.
7: But at some point I had to accept that if I'm being 100% honest with myself... If I'm really looking for answers here, I have to accept the possibility that I'm going to land on, no, I'm not Mi'kmaq, and no, I don't have a right to claim a Mi'kmaq identity. Through this process, Justin learned that the individual
2: identity is not what's important, and he says he didn't want to be a part of what he calls the epitome of white privilege, of claiming Indigenous identity when it's convenient for him.
7: That's very dangerous, and it's not something that I'm interested in being a part of, but I do have compassion because every family and every community's story is different. And I know that there are a lot of people like me who never want to do any harm and who are bound up in the exact same struggle and and uh, and journey uh, of questioning.
2: A journey that for many is ongoing. Samuel O'Horse Kessler, NPR News.
8: On this flight, my crew had just completed our service. My colleague on the verge of tears came to the galley after a passenger who refused to wear a mask had been giving her a hard time. I left the galley to speak with the passenger. Politely, I asked, sir, would you please put your mask on? It must be covering both your mouth and nose. He looked at me, and I will not repeat the epithet he used. He said, n-word, I don't have to listen to a damn thing you say. This is a free country. I was completely taken aback. I didn't know what to say. But he continued, you heard me, n-word boy.
9: The number of unruly passengers on airplanes is surging. The Federal Aviation Administration has reported nearly 500 incidents so far just this year. Now, some airlines are calling on the Justice Department for help. Our chief Washington correspondent Jeff Bennett has the story.
4: Over the last 2 years, the so-called friendly skies have often been anything but rowdy air travelers berating flight attendants and pulled off planes by police. All right. This year alone, the FAA reports that there have been 499 incidents of unruly passengers, 324 of which have been mask-related. 80 cases have been referred to the FBI for criminal review. Earlier this month, on an American Airlines flight from L.A. to Washington, a man tried to open the plane door in mid-flight. Court documents say a flight attendant hit him in the head with a coffee pot to subdue him. Other passengers held the man down until they could make an emergency landing in Kansas City, Missouri. Police have now charged 50-year-old Juan Ramberto Rivas with interfering with a flight attendant, the pilot recounting the ordeal to passenger Muaz Mustafa.
0: Did he try to get at the at the cockpit door, or was he just trying to, like, open the door uh, he, of the
3: plane? He was trying to, but he couldn't get to it, and then he tried to, he actually tried to open. The, the, yeah. the,
4: the, the plane door the plane and the, plane the cockpit door, doors, yeah. both of them. Yeah. The increased constant threat from passengers is wearing on flight attendants.
10: We're seeing a direct result on that morale. People just can't face it every day.
4: Sarah Nelson is the president of the Association of Flight Attendants, CWA Union. She says what's happening now is unprecedented and pins it on pandemic stress and confusion over COVID protocols on planes. How does this stack up against what happened before COVID?
10: These were events that would happen on our planes that were a really bad day at work. You might experience it once or twice in the course of your entire career. And now flight attendants are every single day going to work and understanding that it's very likely that they're going to experience this conflict and maybe up to and including a physical assault.
4: Airlines now asking the Justice Department to keep unruly passengers from boarding flights in the first place. Earlier this month, Delta CEO Ed Bastian sent a letter to Attorney General Merrick Garland asking for a national no-fly list that would bar that person from traveling on any commercial air carrier if convicted of an onboard disruption. The Justice Department says it's reviewing the letter and will continue to prioritize investigations and prosecutions of those involved in airplane misconduct. Sarah Nelson says a national no-fly list is long overdue.
10: A banned flyer list that has this due process in place and also has a communication vehicle so that on the day of the incident, every airline can get notified if there has been an egregious event on board one flight. And we can avoid boarding someone onto another flight to create another problem on that airline.
4: A move eight Republican senators say that should be up to Congress to decide. In a new letter, they claim most unruly passenger incidents are related to the federal transportation mask mandate, writing, Creating a federal no-fly list for unruly passengers who are skeptical of this mandate would seemingly equate them to terrorists who seek to actively take the lives of Americans and perpetrate attacks on the homeland. Sarah Nelson says the worst in-flight incidents often have nothing to do with the mask mandate.
10: The real problems on the planes, the ones where uh, people are really violating the law um, and may end up serving time in jail when DOJ gets through the process of prosecuting them, those oftentimes have not started with a mask issue at all. And so I want to be really clear that uh, there's a lot of people who would love to add this to the politici- politicization of this pandemic and try to say that this is all over masks. And it's just not true.
4: Alison <laughs> Sider writes about airlines and travel for The Wall Street Journal.
10: It's just turning out to be quite complicated to figure out how to handle these inc- incidents that involve unruly passengers so there's a lot of questions about you know if there's a if there's a, fl- a no-fly list who should be on it what agency should oversee it and you know i think it's turning out to be very complicated
4: so what does this all mean then for an airline industry that's trying to rebound from the pandemic
10: airlines really want people to get back out there you know especially as the omicron variant seems to be receding but yeah as Flights get more crowded again. This is just another thing that the airlines and particularly the flight attendants and the crew have to deal with, um, and airport employees. It just makes their jobs a lot harder as they're dealing with these, you know, increased passenger numbers. If even a small number of people coming back to travel are causing these disruptions,
4: with airlines warning disruptive behavior won't fly. For the PBS NewsHour, I'm Jeff Bennett.
11: A new report shows a disparity in car insurance premiums in America based on ethnicity. The Consumer Federation of America says black drivers with good records have to pay far more for their auto insurance than their white counterparts. BNC correspondent Astrid Martinez breaks down
10: the report
11: auto insurance companies
12: claim they can save good drivers money but a new report is pushing back african
13: americans unfortunately pay a lot higher in auto insurance premiums than white americans and how there's a pretty rampant racial discrimination uh, Throughout the industry.
12: A survey by the Consumer Federation of America looked at good drivers who live in zip codes mainly populated by African Americans and compared them to those in largely white areas. It found that quoted premiums were 13% higher for black drivers than those who live in white neighborhoods of comparable risk
13: auto insurers, they use numerous non-driving socioeconomic-related factors uh, to overcharge people and charge them higher premiums. And uh, Black Americans get disproportionately hit. And uh, this contributes to structural racism. Um, These socioeconomic factors, there's a whole bunch of them, but they include uh, someone's education level, uh, what kind of job they work at, uh, their zip code and where they live, uh, their gender, uh, whether they rent or own their home, and uh, most importantly of all, someone's credit score. Consumer Federation of America and other groups, we've done studies and we've found that people with uh, poor credit pay hundreds of dollars more in auto insurance premiums annually. Mm-hmm. And this disproportionately impacts uh, Black Americans because due to past and present discrimination, uh, they tend to have lower credit than white Americans.
12: The Consumer Federation of America says this complicated formula used by insurance companies allows them to assume how likely it is that someone will continue paying premiums or they will get into an accident that will cost the insurer money. Having a low credit score doesn't necessarily mean that you are a bad driver, but they're not really taking consideration of your of your driving history into, into this. They're taking your credit score, which will determine to them if you're possibly going to file a claim. I guess assuming that people that are better off will probably pay out of pocket and won't file any insurance claims.
13: Yeah, that's an interesting point. Yes. Basically, Credit scores—you uh, can have people can have poor credit for a variety of reasons. The auto insurance industry likes to claim that, like, it's an example of them being irresponsible and risky, so they won't—they'll get into like accidents or, some- or file more claims. But people can have bad credit for a variety of reasons.
12: The Insurance Information Institute is an industry-funded consumer education organization. They called the methodology incomplete and said the industry does not tolerate discrimination.
14: So there are other factors that go into and. There's a couple of reasons for it. I mean, the make and model of the vehicle, well, the auto insurer wants to figure out what's it going to cost to replace certain parts for this vehicle. It's going to cost a lot more to insure a, a Corvette than a, uh, a compact does Civic, let's say. Um, they want to know your zip code because uh, this is going to tell the auto insurer, do you reside in an urban area, more densely populated, more likely to get into an accident, potentially uh, more likely to have your car Uh, stolen or damaged. So the auto insurers gathering as much information as they can to assess the risk and price the, the, the policy in the correct way.
12: Experts suggest to shop around if you believe you're being overpriced for car insurance. The business is highly competitive and you should be able to find savings. Astrid Martinez for BNC.
15: Simon & Schuster Audio presents Countdown How Our Modern World is Threatening Sperm Counts Altering Male and Female Reproductive Development and Imperiling the Future of the Human Race by Shauna Swan, Ph.D. with Stacey Colino Now,
16: time was not so many decades ago. A high birth rate was seen as a threat to the future of humanity and to individual nations' prosperity. Now, for many countries, the concerns focus on having a vibrant, economically productive population. And if one country represents the new demographic reality, it's South Korea, where fewer babies were born last year than at any time since records began. Here's our Asia-Pacific regional editor, Will Leonardo.
17: It's another year of sobering numbers from South Korea's statistics agency. The fertility rate, that's how many children on average a woman has during her lifetime, has fallen again to just 0.81. Last year's figures was the world's lowest, so it seems very likely that that will be repeated again this year. And it's also noticeable how much lower it is than other countries that we often talk about having a demographic crisis, among them Japan, Spain, Russia... South Korea reported just 260,000 new births in 2021 for a population of over 50 million people. And meanwhile, another record, the highest number of deaths at 318,000. And therein lies the problem. South Korea's population is starting to decline. And with fewer working age people, you've potentially got a slowing economy and a struggling healthcare system. So it's worrying for the government. They've been throwing money at the problem, giving handouts for each newborn. In the capital, Seoul, the authorities have announced $1,600 in vouchers for each child, and that's on top of national benefits. But analysts say there are systemic economic and societal issues at play in the decision not to start families. Economic security for many young South Koreans is elusive, exacerbated, of course, by the pandemic, which has also stopped people meeting. Meanwhile, house prices are soaring in the big cities and analysts say it's not easy for couples to get a place of their own. Widening inequality is one of voters' key concerns ahead of presidential elections next month. And with the birth rate slowing for years, there's also just fewer young people. One way around that is mass immigration. And while there are more immigrants in South Korea than there were before, the numbers are still low compared to other developed countries. Will Leonardo.
18: New figures show that the maternal mortality rate in the United States, already the worst amongst industrialised countries, has risen to its highest level in 50 years. The data, which comes from the National Centre for Health Statistics, also shows that black women are three times more likely than white women to die during or just after pregnancy. Mark Duff
19: has this report. The numbers speak for themselves. Across the United States, 861 women died during or just after pregnancy in 2020. That same year, the latest for which figures are available, the US maternal death rate was more than three times higher than in neighbouring Canada. America's figures, already the worst in the industrialised world, have risen to their highest level for half a century. And it's getting worse. Speaking in December at the White House's first-ever maternal health day of action, Vice President Kamala Harris acknowledged the crisis.
20: To put it simply, here's how I feel about this. In the United States of America, in the 21st century, being pregnant and giving birth should not carry such great
19: risk. Today's figures also reveal a widening racial disparity with 55.3 deaths per 100,000 life births among black women, compared to 19.1 for white women. Rohin Kosolio is an advisor to Kamala Harris.
10: The United States has some of the worst outcomes of developed nations in this area. Within those numbers of women dying during childbirth, black women and Native American women are dying at a disproportional rate. This is a serious crisis that deserves immediate action.
19: Across the world, maternal mortality dropped throughout the 20th century, due in large part to medical advances. But the US rate has been backsliding since the turn of the millennium. And while the underlying causes are acknowledged to be complex, experts do point to one factor that distinguishes the United States from most similar countries. Its lack of any genuine form of universal healthcare.
18: That was Mark Duff. A new report by the World Health Organization and the United Nations Children's Agency, UNICEF, has accused producers of formula baby milk of unethical marketing practices. The organizations say the aggressive promotion of formula is in breach of international commitments to protect breastfeeding. The BBC's Africa Health Correspondent Dorcas Wangira reports. The joint report, How
21: Marketing of Formula Milk Influences Our Decisions on Infant Feeding, draws on interviews with parents, pregnant women, and health workers in eight countries including Morocco, Nigeria, South Africa, and the United Kingdom. The $55 US dollar formula industry, the report says, uses marketing techniques which include unregulated and invasive online targeting, sponsored advice networks and helplines, promotions and free gifts and practices to influence training and recommendations among health workers. Dr. Nigel Rawlins is a scientist with the WHO's Department of Maternal, Newborn, Child and Adolescent Health.
22: This research and this report is not about getting infant formula products off the shelves, nor limiting access to products, nor uh, about restricting the rights uh, of anybody. Uh, The research focused on marketing practices, that try to sway and influence our knowledge, our values, our beliefs about infant feeding. Our concern is that mothers and families, practitioners, have access to impartial, objective information and support about a time of life and a practice in life that is so critically important According
21: to the report, the messages that parents and health workers receive are often misleading, scientifically unsubstantiated and violate the 1981 International Code of Marketing of breast milk substitutes.
22: The most immediate uh, response needs to indeed come from governments. Um, And uh, the Code of Marketing provides a set of recommendations and governments need to take those recommendations into national legislation.
21: Breastfeeding within the first hour of birth, followed by exclusive breastfeeding for six months and continued breastfeeding for up to two years or beyond, offers a powerful line of defense against all forms of child malnutrition and many common childhood illnesses. It also reduces women's future risk of diabetes, obesity and some forms of cancer. Globally, only 44% of babies less than six months old are exclusively breastfed. According to WHO, global breastfeeding rates have increased very little in the past two decades, while sales of formula milk have more than doubled in roughly the same time.
18: That report by Dorcas Wengira.
1: Greenville spokesperson is apologizing for statements made in a social media post involving Black History Month. But a handful of upstate activists tell 7 News Melanie Palmer that it's not enough. She joins us live from downtown Greenville to explain
12: Melanie.
5: Ignorant, insensitive, and just in poor taste, with it being Black History Month. That's what a handful of community and local leaders are telling us after they saw this post created by the city of Greenville Tuesday on one of their social media accounts. It all happened on their Instagram page Tuesday in honor of Black History Month. A post was created including quotes from Mayor Knox White about his time attending high school during integration. In that included statements and quotes from him saying that a good amount of his friends were, being sent to other schools, and that it was a time of tremendous adjustment. A handful of community activists tell us after they saw this, they were extremely disappointed.
23: It just pushes us back.
24: Uh, the insensitivity. Uh, this is Black History Month, and to do something like that, you know, uh, I just can't believe it.
5: Now, the spokesperson here for the city of Greenville, Beth Brotherton, is taking full responsibility for all of this. She says that the mayor had no knowledge of this post, didn't review it beforehand, and these statements and quotes came from a documentary that he was involved in back in 2020. However, these community activists we've spoken to said they believe that this apology is just a slap in the face, and they want to hear from the mayor, who has not yet made any kind of public response to all of this. In downtown Greenville, Melanie Palmer, 7 News.
12: We bring you today to Forsyth County, Georgia, just 30 miles north of Atlanta, which in the past few weeks has gained the reputation of being a hotbed of racism. Here are just some of the images of Forsyth County in past weeks that were broadcast around
25: the globe. There's no niggers here. Why should they even come, you know? They asked for it. They got it. So why'd they come back, you know?
26: In Forsyth County, about an hour's drive from Atlanta, there exists a void. It's so ingrained that it's hard to know just how deep. While the void's origins date back long before 1912, that's when two separate but similar events forever changed the county. It's when murderous white mobs known as night riders drove out every black person. 1,098, according to the census, gone. In the process, they burned black churches and businesses and lynched three black men who allegedly raped white women. Today, more than a century later, fewer than 5% of the quarter million people who live in Forsyth are black. Those numbers point to just how effective the Forsyth racial cleansing really was.
21: We didn't know the details.
1: I was 30 years old before I found out more than my mother was from Forsyth County. That's all I knew.
26: Elon Osby says her family used to own 60 acres of land in Forsyth. She's part of a recent panel here at Poplar Hill Baptist Church in nearby Beaufort in Gwinnett County about the cleansing's aftermath.
1: Nobody went back. You didn't go back the next week and say, well, you know, let me go back to sell my property It was done. It was over. No one in my family came back to Forsyth
26: County until 2007. The effect of generations of families not coming back and really not even talking about the massacre makes finding descendants difficult. Many of Poplar Hill's 13 rows of pews, seats that have long served as a refuge for those fleeing racial oppression, sit empty or nearly empty. But for those who are here, their stories point to the lingering effect of the 1912 purge. Like James Knuckles, who shares his childhood memory of laying bricks for homes under construction, homes for white families.
24: We had to be out of Forsyth County before the sun went down. I do remember that. And several times, we did not get a chance to eat until we got back over into uh, Fulton County.
26: While Forsyth County is different today, Some here question, how different? Like Latricia Jackson. At one point, she asked panel members to weigh in on the mixed signal sent when Forsyth residents say they want racial healing, but at a school board meeting, speak in favor of banning books or limiting classroom conversations about racism. And what happened to efforts to teach Forsyth 8th graders about the county's past?
12: And there was a plan to actually teach about what happened in Forsyth County in 1912. Um, There was work done with the Historical Society as well as the Remembrance Project to get the data, get it right, and teach all eighth graders in Forsyth the true history of Forsyth County. That has all been put on the back burner.
26: This prompts the co-president of Forsyth's Historical Society to clarify. Um,
12: That's what we have been told, and there's several projects we're working with school board
27: that um, have been put on hold
26: because of COVID. Martha McConnell, who is white, says the delay is mostly because of COVID. And
27: a lot of things because of diversity.
26: Jackson we'll pushes that. back, City. noting There's a lack of, of diversity on Forsyth's down. completely white school board.
12: They are banning books that deal with race that deal with LGBTQ. That is what's happening in Forsyth County. Please just watch one school board meeting and you will see. This
26: tension speaks to the elephant in the room. How do you heal when the common refrain is to deny personal responsibility? I just want
15: to say one thing that most of the people that are working on the school board are not, their families
12: were not there in 1920. I ran into that several times and, and said someone from Forsyth County is doing this and it might be someone, sorry, I'm not, um,
26: you know, the, That's the old, the old Forsyth, Forsyth County. County. Answering the question would mean addressing the root cause of this lingering void, this friction, an effort that could take really an act of Congress. That's just what might happen. Democratic Congresswoman Carolyn Bordeaux recently introduced such legislation. It calls for a National Day of Remembrance. Others have collected money for scholarships for descendants of the 1912 purge. But is it all a little too little, a little too late? Even a congressional resolution is baby steps. The answer feels like it's a marathon away. But Reverend Avery Head, pastor of Poplar Hill, says even small steps are steps forward. The main
17: thing is that you made it and
0: you're here today and that's a blessing. If, you, if you're a white person, you didn't let negative thoughts and ideas from other people challenge you to the point that you didn't want to stand up for what's right. I think that in, in itself demands a hand clap of praise if you don't mind. <laughs> wow! So hey, your drama. What? hold up, hold on, hold on.
28: Stop the motherfucking record. When are uh, we as black people going to have the level of self-respect and courage to really come out of the slave role. I want
25: you to Pondy replay drama. Pondy replay. <laughs> Let's
19: give him one more chance, man. Run that shit the fuck back.
29: The main thing is that you made it
0: and you're here today and that's a blessing. If, you, if you're if you a white person, you didn't let negative thoughts and ideas from other people challenge you to the point that you didn't want to stand up for what's right. I think that it, In itself, demands a hand clap of praise, if you don't mind.
30: They really thought that they could get away with killing this young man, and nothing would happen to them. And I'm just glad to see, as they say, double justice. We finally got the justice that we've been waiting on for a very long, long time.
11: And it comes on the two-year anniversary. Tomorrow marks two years since Ahmad Arbery was killed. Um, could you tell me a little bit about the legislation and tomorrow being the first statewide
30: official day? Tomorrow is the Ahmad Arbery day. Um, February 23rd will be forever in Georgia, the day known as Ahmad Arbery. What the resolution does, it recognizes his family, but most importantly, it notes that his death led to the overturning of the Georgia citizen arrest law and the adoption of the hate crimes legislation by the Georgia General Assembly. Hopefully now they understand that you cannot just walk around and go around and arrest black boys because you see them running through your neighborhood, because you see them walking alone in the streets. And now his parents have 100 percent. Justice with ahmad's story he
11: came his story came to light in twenty twenty and is a, memorialized alongside people like Brianna Taylor and George <laughs> Floyd. Can you mm-hmm. tell me what it's like to be here in Georgia when so many people from around the country have been paying attention to ahmad's
30: story as well? It gives hope that it will give other states and give other people a South hope that uh What's going on here in Georgia, and what have happened today? Uh, it would give them hope that the same thing could happen in their states. Um, we know Georgia is the black mecca. We know that Georgia, when people think about Georgia, they think about uh, they think about us as African Americans. It's a place that a lot of people like to come and live and even have a good time. So, what my hope is that other states. Will also uh, pass hate crime legislation and, and follow Georgia lead on this. Follow Georgia lead. Georgia have set the stage, and I hope other states will follow and make sure that they get a hate crimes law uh, passed in their state. For tomorrow,
11: um, as the state is recognizing Ahmad's life. What do you hope that day starts to look for for across the state, across the country, for the years to come? What do you hope people do to celebrate and remember Ahmaud's life?
30: I have a grandson, and, uh, you know, and I told him yesterday, you got to be make sure you're looking out. So tomorrow I want him to just be all eyes in Google knowing that tomorrow is Ahmaud Aubrey's day. And, you know, I want my grandson to... Uh, to truly understand what this day truly mean, I told him he's going to have to get out and run 2.23 miles tomorrow uh, to recognize Ahmaud Aubrey because I don't want him to forget because he's a little black boy. My family's real small. I have one nephew and I have a son, and they both have boys. So, you know, it's, it, that's real close and dear to my heart because I have to let him know that this could could have been you. You know, it could have been one of them. So, you know, I'm just grateful uh, that his parents got their day in court, and now that they have 100% of justice uh, for their son. It won't bring him back, but it will be a day that we will forever mem- remember. We will remember today for the federal hate crime, but tomorrow we remember Ahmad within mod Arbery Day in the state of Georgia.
1: Guaranteed income programs give cash directly to people in poverty, and pilots are now underway all across the country. It's an idea that Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. promoted. And now a $13 million trial program is launching in his hometown. WABE's Sam Greenglass reports from Atlanta.
6: This is a story about a big idea to fight a big problem, poverty. It's also a story about a place, Atlanta's Old Fourth Ward.
31: We're standing right now, right next to the reflecting pool where Dr. King is buried and just a block away from the house where Dr. King was born.
6: Hope Wollensack directs the Georgia Resilience and Opportunity Fund. She says after voting rights passed, King talked more and more about poverty.
31: He knew that our civic rights are a bit hollow if we don't also have economic rights to back those up. And so among many of the reforms that he advocated for was a guaranteed income.
6: This spring, Sachs organization will give hundreds of low-income black women in King's neighborhood cash payments they can use however they want. An average of $850 a month for two years. It's a departure from traditional anti-poverty programs like food stamps. Sachs says cash allows people to pay off debt, afford a reliable car, or consistent child care.
31: Those often with the lowest incomes are making some of the best financial decisions, and that that choice and agency component really reflects how we trust people to be experts in their own lives, and our current programs don't do that.
6: Organizers hope to prove programs like this one will help lift people out of poverty. Michelle Lockhart is confident it will. She's lived in the Old Fourth Ward most of her life. There were times when extra cash would have made a huge difference, like when she lost her job and
20: couldn't make the car payment. The car people kept calling me like, hey, we need a payment. We need a payment. I'm trying to figure things out. And it stressed me out so badly to where I remember shaking. Lockhart says it's impossible
6: to start a business or hunt for a better job when you're struggling just to stay above water.
20: The inability to get off of the hamster wheel. This kid is sick, so you got to take this kid to the doctor. You got to take off work. And now you're missing hours, and now you're going to have to come up short somewhere on some bill because you're missing days at work.
6: Even experts who embrace guaranteed income say it should be paired with other policies. Professor Luke Schaefer directs the Poverty Solutions Program at the University of Michigan. He says some traditional programs really do work, like early childhood education. But he says policymakers need to ask.
3: Would people be better off just if I gave them the money that I spent on this program than if I gave them this program.
6: Schaefer says the pandemic may have eroded some people's discomfort with giving cash directly to people facing economic hardship. Federal pandemic relief checks and the expanded child tax credit were fairly popular at the height of the pandemic and reduced child poverty. Though that doesn't mean lawmakers will race to fund guaranteed income on a big scale. Just look at proposals to make the federal expanded child tax credit permanent. They're now dead in Congress and support has faded.
3: It could be that we just had this historic moment when we took an approach like we hadn't been before that it was like incredibly successful. And then afterwards, we went back to our old place
6: on the patio of Dancing Goats coffee shop, where lattes cost five bucks and there's a West Elm and a Warby Parker next door. Amir Faroki says Dr. King's neighborhood is changing rapidly. Faroki chairs the guaranteed income pilot and represents Old Fourth Ward on City Council.
7: So you have million-dollar homes on the same block as subsidized housing that was built 40, 50 years ago. And it's in many ways a reflection of Atlanta writ large.
6: Atlanta ranks among the top cities for income inequality in the country. But attracting state support to expand this no-strings program would be an uphill climb. In Georgia, Republicans have touted work requirements, even for benefits like Medicaid. For now, this pilot is funded by philanthropic dollars. But Faroki says public servants have to do more to address poverty.
7: Whether you're working a 200 k job a year or a 30 k job a year, there should be a place for you in this neighborhood in this city.
6: This spring, Faroki and others hope they'll start chipping away at the inequities Dr. King preached about in this city more than half a century ago. For NPR News, I'm Sam Greenglass in Atlanta.
24: Uh, I was in a house last night that was on my own, but I didn't, it didn't destroy all my clothes at all, but you know what happens when fire dashes through they get smoky. The only thing I could get my hands on before leaving was what I have on now. And uh, it wasn't, it isn't something that made me lose confidence in what I'm doing, because my wife understands, and I have children from this size, hung down and even in their young age they understand. I think they would rather have a father or brother or whatever the situation may be who will take a stand in the face of any kind of reaction from narrow-minded people uh, rather than to compromise and later on have to grow up in shame and in distress.
15: It was 57 years ago today, February 21, 1965, when Malcolm X was assassinated on the stage at the Audubon Ballroom in New York City, not far from where we are. Malcolm's family is now calling for a federal probe into his murder. In November, a New York judge exonerated two men who spent decades in prison after being wrongfully convicted in the assassination 83 year old Mohammed Aziz and Khalil Islam, who died in 2009. This came after the Manhattan District Attorney's Office. Office and the Innocence Project conducted a nearly two-year investigation that uncovered key evidence, which was unhe- which was withheld at the trial of the two men. We're joined now by Ilyasa Shabazz, one of Malcolm X's six daughters, professor at John Jay College of Criminal Justice in New York City, community organizer, motivational speaker, activist, and award-winning author of many books. Still with us, civil rights attorney Ben Crump, who is working with Malcolm X's family. Um, Ilyasa, first, I want to say condolences on the recent death of your sister. Um, Your family has gone through so much pain over the years. And now you're calling for a federal probe into your dad's assassination. Um, It's 57 years ago today. Talk about what you want to see.
32: Well, you used a great word, animus. Um, We do want a federal uh, probe. You know, my father exposed police brutality across America to the world in the late 50s and 60s. And, you know, I think that enough is enough. We want to know who killed our father, who ordered the assassination, and, um, and we want to set the record straight.
15: And the significance of these two men, um, Muhammad Abdulaziz, who is still alive, and Khalil Islam, who died years ago, both serving decades in prison, falsely convicted of the assassination of your father?
32: That's right. Um, (laughs) You know, again, we want to know who killed our father. And we want to— Make sure that it is properly recorded in history.
15: So, Ben Crump, talk specifically about what you want Congress to do.
25: Well, as Ilyasa said, we want Congress to help document the truth, uh, just as they did with the JFK Commission, the MLK Commission, and the RFK Commission. We want them to have a congressional panel empowered to do an investigation, a complete investigation, tell who was responsible for planning the conspiracy to assassinate Malcolm X. We understand that, based on these recent exonerations, that you had not only the NYPD uh, Bureau of Special Uh, investigations involved, but you also had, with NYPD bossy, the FBI involved to the very top, uh, to the FBI director, J. Edgar Hoover. Finally, the family deserves the truth of who killed their father. The names need to be named. And the American society and the world deserve the truth as well. And we are prepared, Attorney Ray Hamlin and our legal team, to go through every legal uh, avenue possible to get to the truth for Malcolm X's family and to finally give them some measure of justice.
15: Before we end, I want to get your comments on Malcolm X himself speaking in 1964. He was speaking in the Audubon Ballroom. This was like six months before he was assassinated.
24: One of the first things that the independent African nations did was to form an organization called the Organization of African Unity, the purpose of our organization of Afro-American Unity, which has the same aim and objective, to fight whoever gets in our way, to bring about the complete of people of African descent here in the Western Hemisphere and first here in the United States and bring about the freedom of these people by any means
28: necessary.
15: Malcolm X six months before he was assassinated, in the very same place, in the Audubon Ballroom. Ilyasa, you were just two, but you were there with your mother and sisters um, when your father was gunned down. And every February 21st and May 19th, his birthday, um, at WBAI, um, where we began uh, Democracy Now! and um, where I worked for decades, we would play your dad's speeches and talk to your Mother, Dr. Betty Shabazz, and she talked about how the sound of his voice on the radio would echo through the rooms. Can you end by talking about the significance of your mother and your father together in raising you and the message they felt was most important and how they'd feel about what's happening today?
32: Yes, I have to say, Amy, it warms my heart. And, and you know, again, it's the reason that no matter where I am, when you ask me to come on your show, I'm, I, I, I don't think i will ever say no to you. Um, you know, my father provided the biggest critique of America with its insistence that America lives up to her promise of liberty and justice for all. Um, I'm grateful that my parents had the love and support um, that they had in one another. Uh, My mother safeguarded her husband's legacy. Her home would be firebombed on uh, February 14th. One week later, um, he would invite my mother and the babies to see him deliver his federation on the Organization of Afro-American Unity as an extension of the Organization of African Unity um, for liberty and justice. And my mother would watch this horrific assassination, and uh, my sisters and I, um, she was pregnant with twins, and she safeguarded her husband's legacy, not so that he could be famous, but for the benefit of future generations. He did extensive work, and, 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 and we know the enormous threat that he posed, and I think when we address what really happened, then young people, will be able to benefit from his work, he said that it would be this generation of young people who would recognize that those in power have misused it and that they would demand change and they would be willing to roll up their sleeves and do the necessary work. My father spoke truth. Truth is timeless. And so we are um, very happy that we will soon get the truth on who um, organized his assassination.
15: We want to thank you so much for being with us. Ilyasa Shabazz, one of Malcolm X's six daughters, professor now at John Jay College of Criminal Justice in New York City.
30: And, you know, I want my grandson to uh, to truly understand what this day truly means. I told him he's going to have to get out and run 2.23 miles tomorrow uh, to recognize Ahmaud Aubrey because I don't want him to forget because he's a little black boy. My family is real small. I have one nephew and I have a son, and they both have boys. So, you know, that's real close and dear to my heart because I have to let them know that this could could have been you. You know, it could have been one of them.
5: Earlier this morning, we brought you a story about what leaders of the movement to get George Zimmerman arrested and charged remember and how far they believe we've come. Trayvon Martin's death 10 years ago impacted the world and changed the lives of many. For our series marking a decade since his death, WMFE's Talia Blake talked with Orlando activist Miles Moraine Jr. and Angela Herrera, who helped organize Orlando's 2020 protests over George Floyd, about how The Martin case impacted their lives and the role of social media.
29: I remember Trayvon Martin like it was yesterday. I remember just, you know, social media wasn't as powerful as it is right now, but I remember seeing it online and just seeing how rattled it got, like how crazy we got. Us being in Central Florida, this happening right there in Sanford. And even um, one of my first experiences with anything close to activism was actually going to the rally in Sanford. And I remember. Putting on my hoodie and saying that I am Trayvon and feeling so enraged and wanting to see so much change and wanting to have it immediately right then. And just reliving the kind of thoughts of how close of age we were at that time and how that could have been me or my little brother or anybody. You know, it was something that hit hard. So even 10 years later, I still remember that like it was just yesterday
33: so when this happened i was actually um probably headed into high school this was one of the first times like where i grew up and i saw the impact this had on my community on my friends did
27: either of your parents or anyone close to you you know have the talk with you after trayvon was killed yeah my,
29: my mom in particular um being especially worried you know i was a young black man i was about 21 22 at the time and when it happened she just was worried about what happened to me or you know, this danger ground law that everybody was talking about, how it could be used against people of color. And it was just a scary moment because, like, nowadays, people might have become desensitized to it. But at the time when it happened with Trayvon Martin, it wasn't the police brutality issue, but it was an issue that became a racial issue. And you can see clearly how things were being changed, the narrative was being changed because this was a young black boy and how they kind of weaponized his race against him and I just remember, like everybody in my family, just feeling vulnerable, and just telling every black man they knew, every black boy, just be careful because you could see what could happen.
27: And you grew up here in Orlando, in Central Florida. So you know, how did you feel about basically the community that you were living in, growing up in? Did you feel safe?
29: You know, it was it was an eye opener. You know, being in Central Florida, you might hear things about. Sanford or some of the counties sometimes, but you also know that there are people of color living there. There's people of color all over Central Florida, so you would think that it wouldn't have been viewed how it was viewed. We already have an issue of things with mass incarceration and school-to-prison pipeline, but also knowing that in your day and every day that a young boy, 17 at the time, just walking home from the store could be targeted, harassed, and eventually shot and killed, and still there would be no justice for him. That was just a shocking eye-opening. Me being in my early 20s, I knew that there'd be no less sympathy for me. if There was no less sympathy for Trayvon.
27: Social media played a big role in bringing attention to Trayvon's case. I mean, that was probably one of our first real big hashtag moments on Twitter. And that's still the case today, like when we saw the video of George Floyd. I mean, everyone saw that video. How do you use social media today when you're fighting injustice? Angela,
33: it's a matter of like when these protests were happening, you share them with the community. People are reposting them. People are commenting. People want to get involved. Social media is a powerful tool, especially for like our Gen Zers or millennials. Like it's it's so crucial because it allows people to know what is happening in their community. And, and the thing is, a lot many times, like if it wasn't for social media, it's it's hard sometimes to either like call organizations and be like, how can I get involved? And you don't have to call these organizations. You don't have to show up to these events to that organization of are having. You could literally go on your phone, look, you know, there's an event, I will just show up right then and there. The information is literally in my hands. I will go, it makes it more accessible.
29: Um, not only do you use it to like spread information about events and just where we can take physical actions. Sometimes it's called actions online where you might put out a call for people to call a certain phone number, you know, email, write a letter, do different things like that. And you can see the power of social media, especially with petitions and Different things that you can actually get paper trails of people who, like Angela said, everybody feels outraged. Everybody feels that like they want to take action. And sometimes somebody might be at work and they can't make it. So instead, they may have to support through a phone call or even a donation or just showing up and dropping off water bottles or going back to work. So it gives a chance for everybody to kind of come together and play a part.
27: And social media is powerful. But I mean, it's still been 10 years since Trayvon Martin Miles, do you think we've made progress since his death? I
29: think it's been a double edged sword. You know, I think that we've seen people like the individual person has maybe become more aware and maybe has taken more action. There's more people more than often now that can say they've participated in a protest or done a call to action. So everybody's getting more active, but at the same time, you've seen more people become desensitized to it or it's just another incident that's taking place. and. People sometimes feel like it's pointless to keep fighting if they don't see immediate change. So social media can sometimes be great, and sometimes it can just make an issue not as important as it should be because you have an issue that takes place one week in a city, and then next week another issue happens that overshadows it, and people kind of jump from trends, just like they do with social media. But it's it's powerful. I do think it does better help than harm, but you don't always see the change that you would want to see. You know, I would think that. 10 years of protesting if Black Lives Matter, you would see more when it came to the reform on paper.
33: It's unfortunate, but um, I don't think we've made the progress that we would like to see. Um, and earlier today, like just looking up with stats, um, just in the past year, like the amount of uh, police killings did not change from 2020 to tw- 2021. And that just tells you a whole lot. You know, we're protesting, we are advocating, but why is that number still the same if not there were seven more? Um, in twenty twenty one, like these numbers are still this are still the same. Yes, you know, these com- these hard conversations are being had, and as miles mentioned, like people are more aware and that that's great and all, but we are still we can't forget that what we're advocating for is for reform, and we are yet to see that. Um, and if we are seeing it as happening super, like it's it's happening slow and we have to continue pushing for it.
29: Just to wrap it up, you know, Trayvon Martin was something that was like a first of uh, many to come in the social media age at that time. You know, we had incidents that happened with Tamir Rice and other people that, you know, kind of changed the way that things are. But Trayvon Martin was one of the first big major viral moments and sad to say, you know, ten years later we can probably name a hundred different viral moments from that time that happened with people that were either victimized because of their skin color like Ahmad Arbery and Trayvon Martin, or we could just say police brutality like George Floyd or any of the other people we're on the tablet to name and we could just keep naming for days. So it's been impactful. You know, I hope that ten years from now we're not still discussing new names, we're actually discussing how we stopped having so many names added to the hashtags.
5: That was Miles Moraine Jr. and Angela Herrera speaking with WMFE's
28: Talia Blake. So, you know, these events that keep coming up, instead of just reacting, dealing with them one at a time and being shocked each time we have another event that surfaces that, we, that is brought to our attention. We need to function from the position of an analysis that clarifies we are in a total system structure of racism, white supremacy. And that is why we are seeing the kinds of behaviors from individuals, be it Donald Sterling or be it uh, George Zimmerman or any of the other cases, that come to our attention there is a reason that these cases exist and i want to also talk about in this case they talked about mental health but also gun control and we have to begin to understand i say you can't understand the gun mania if you don't understand racism white supremacy the gun is the answer to conscious and or subconscious, the answer, the response to the quite collective feeling they can be genetically annihilated by black genetic material. And the gun is a great equaliser. I encourage everybody to get a copy of the ISIS papers and read.
6: The death of black teenager Trayvon Martin, fatally shot during a scuffle with Neighbourhood Watch volunteer George Zimmerman in Sanford, raised questions about Florida's controversial Stand Your Ground law. To help us understand more about how the law is used and where a debate on it sits now, 10 years on, WMFE's Brendan Burns spoke with Stetson University College of Law Professor Judith Scully. She began by explaining how the law was not used in Zimmerman's murder trial.
9: Stand Your Ground was not used in the Trayvon Martin case because um, it wasn't really necessary to do so. Um, The lawyers there indicated that they believed and um, George Zimmerman believed that he just had the right to use deadly force because he was um, clearly being threatened right we don't we don't need to resort to stand your ground when you're involved in an altercation where um, there is a gun which was George Zimmerman's gun not Trayvon Martin's but George Zimmerman's um, where there's a gun and you are directly involved in an altercation that is fully. Um, Mm full-blown.
16: So in in what case would he need to use Stand Your Ground? And this is all hypothetical at this point. Like, What what would be the the different factor in that altercation?
9: So Stand Your Ground is also used to prevent prosecution, right? That's literally what our Stand Your Ground rule in Florida allows. It allows for you to avoid even being charged if you can provide the facts that indicate that you were in a lawful place, right? At that time, um, at the time of the altercation that you reasonably believed that you were threatened with deadly force and you used the amount of force that was necessary, um, like fighting deadly force with deadly force, right? So it is actually, when we say stand your ground rule in Florida, we're talking about the ability to um, not just argue this issue at trial, but to avoid trial altogether, right? So when we talk about stand your ground, there's generally um, the ability of the um, accused who has done the shooting to avoid prosecution altogether. I should not be in court is basically the argument that stand your ground allows for in, in the state of Florida. I should not be in court actually even defending myself because the law says that I can stand my ground when I have a reasonable belief that I am threatened with deadly force. Um, George Zimmerman did not have that type of a hearing. He was obviously going to trial at that point as well. And so he used the traditional concepts of um, self-defense that are embodied in the Florida statute, Mm -hmm. which include a reasonable belief as well. The necessity to use force Mm -hmm. um, would be the second major component. And so the defense team for him just simply focused on those two issues Mm -hmm. and what's controversial about that is what is a reasonable belief that someone is threatening you right who decides what reasonable is and part of the problem in the United States and in Florida in particular as well is that reasonable beliefs are determined by um, our experiences and by our perceptions right as average citizens right and this this is a question of fact what is reasonable and so many people will take into consideration the fact that um, the, the other person in the altercation was a black individual. And we have all of these stereotypes and um, all of these biases, right, against black men in particular, but black people in general, right? And um there's a fear in the United States, unfortunately, that many people embrace. And so when they think about an altercation with a black person. Um Their minds go to the fact that, oh, that must be really threatening. you must he must have been really scared. It would have been reasonable for him to use deadly force because you know um, the person who's thinking about this is saying, if I were in that situation, I might be scared too, right? And so race plays a role in determining what reasonable fear is, and this is a result of not just individual bias but media bias as well. We have been exposed to so many decades of pictures of Black men in prison jumpsuits and Black men um, being charged with violent crimes and headlines that talk about violence in the Black community, that many individuals automatically begin to match up violence, fear, and Black people together. And so for many individuals, thinking about what constitutes reasonable fear, um, race is involved in that, unfortunately.
16: I want to talk about, the racial implications of this law in a minute, but I want to go back to something you said. So so stand your ground is used as a way to prevent something from going to court. I feel like that could be quite problematic as who is making that decision. It's not a jury of peers, right? It, it is one particular judge or
9: prosecutor that gets to make that decision? Maybe a police officer. We had a case here in Pinellas County in the Clearwater area where um, the sheriff actually decided not to charge an individual um, with a homicide crime after a shooting because the sheriff believed that that individual was justified under our standard ground law. And the sheriff actually said, if I charge him, I may be um, subject to some sort of liability. The law basically says that we should not be charging them if there is um, reasonable grounds to believe that they would be successful on a standard ground charge. So in in that individual instance, we had a sheriff making the decision. Luckily, that sheriff's decision was then sent to the prosecutor's office, and then the prosecutor made a decision in that case and chose to prosecute. But um, it could have turned out that the prosecutor in that case agreed with the sheriff as well. It just so happened, it didn't happen in that case. And the case I'm referring to is the Marquise McLaughlin case.
25: Mm-hmm.
16: Mm-hmm. I mean, that that seems like it's extremely problematic when it comes to carrying out justice, is it
9: not? Oh, it absolutely is. Like you said, it allows the power of making a decision about what constitutes a justifiable killing. It lays that responsibility on the hands of one individual. It may be one sheriff, one police officer, one prosecutor, right? Um, but yes, it is problematic. It means that the jury has been removed from the possibility of hearing the case, or the judge has been removed. Either you know, the court, the legal proceeding has been removed altogether. We just decide this on the spot, and we're done.
16: Was that the reason why it took so long for Zimmerman to be arrested? Were can you recall them using some sort of argument like that?
9: Um, I don't recall the argument exactly that was made by the um, the police officers in that instance. But what I do recall is that it was community demand that created a focus and a spotlight on that case, which then led to Zimmerman actually being charged. There was definitely a delay um, in terms of charging Zimmerman, and there was an outcry from the from the, the state, really, from um, community activists and concerned citizens that said, How can this man not be charged? Right? We we as the people of this state need to have all of the facts revealed and have an opportunity to weigh in on whether or not this was actually self-defense. In an
16: essay penned by Sabrina Fulton, the mother of Trayvon martin she writes quote i can't help but wonder if the stand your ground laws were created with the legal killing of black people especially men in mind end quote. Um, studies have shown racial inequalities in the application of stand your ground is sabrina fulton justified in writing what she said
9: there i mean sabrina fulton i'm sure is saying what she feels and she's been definitely entitled to her opinion but i can tell you what we do know um, about um, the law in general is that um, individuals who are victimized, the the victims of these killings who are Black, um, generally, um, the perpetrators of those crimes are successful in using the Stand Your Ground law. When the victims are white, they're not as successful in using the Stand Your Ground laws, right? We do see that in the statistics. And unfortunately, we see that in the criminal legal system in general. When we look at who gets the death penalty, right? Again, an individual who kills a white person is more likely to get the death penalty than an individual who kills a black person. And so we have this correlation, unfortunately, in our legal system where there is, appears to be much more empathy towards white victims than towards black victims. And so um, if you are um, killing a black person, you are less likely, right? Um, to be found um, fully responsible for your actions. And so to the extent that Sabrina Fulton is responding to the fact that her child, a young Black boy, a 17-year-old Black boy was killed by somebody who um, successfully um, used a self-defense law, um, I think her opinion in that matter may be reflecting the reality of what we know statistically, right? About um, the lack of protection around the loss of Black life. Are these racial
16: injustices related specifically to the Stand Your Ground law itself, or are they a product of a larger inequity within our judicial system?
9: Right. So Stand Your Ground is just one example of racial inequities in our legal system, right? As I just stated, um, we see these racial inequities in the application of the death penalty as well, right? Um, We also know that Um, When we are looking at statistics that um, Black men and Black women as well are also more likely to be arrested, once arrested, more likely to be charged, once charged, more likely to be charged more severely, once charged severely, more likely to be sentenced, and once sentenced, more likely to be sentenced severely, right? This is what the stats indicate to us. Um, And so, yes, there are issues related to race here. Um, racial inequities that are not addressed by our legal system. We see the statistics and um, we're sometimes just not responding to them. In many instances, we do respond to them. For example, when I think about what has happened in the state of Florida around juvenile criminal law, um, we were definitely seeing the fact that there are more African-American kids who are being transferred into the adult system Um, than white kids, and once that was recognized, we um, saw a lot of policies and uh, a lot of laws kind of changing in order to uh, make sure that the scales were more balanced, that there wasn't just a prosecution of of black children as adults um, as we had in the past. So sometimes when we recognize racial injustices, um, the legal system does respond, sometimes it does not. And in the stand your ground instance, I would have to say that we have not yet responded
7: to these racial inequities. Mr. Doe, going on in your country right now in Vietnam is 4,000 little kids who are in quarantine camps away from their parents because of this fake demic. And you come to my country and you act like one of these communist parasites. I ask you to go the f- back to Vietnam.
15: An update in a
7: two-year-old hate
15: crime that happened in the first few weeks of the pandemic. A teenager attacking an Asian family at the Midland Sam's Club in 2020. The FBI says he targeted them because he thought they were Chinese and spreading COVID. It comes from China. Tonight, we're following new developments in that shocking story. Rachel Robinson joins us with more information. Rachel.
34: Good evening, Crystal. This is a face you might recognize. Jose Gomez III. He's 21 now, but was still a teenager when he first committed the crime. Tonight, he's pled guilty to three counts of committing a hate crime, a crime that many people in Midland remember well. Jose Gomez III was following around the family at the store because he thought they were, quote, from the country who started spreading that disease around. Jose Gomez eventually went after the father.
0: He just, uh, he just, I just to say, stuck on uh, my face with a knife.
34: Gomez also went after the two children, who were two and six at the time, slashing one of the children's face open. But a good Samaritan did step in. Then Sam's Club employee, Zach Owens. He went after Gomez to get the knife out of his hands and to save the family. He
8: stepped in with his bare hands and he went in there, joined in on the fight against an individual who had a knife.
34: Everyone in this incident did survive, but had some pretty bad injuries. Gomez was arrested. As he was restrained, Gomez was heard shouting, quote, get out of America. Tonight, an update. Gomez had pled guilty to three counts of committing a hate crime. He'll be tried in federal court and could face up to life in prison and hundreds of thousands of dollars in fines for each offense. That crime marked a surge in violence and hate crimes committed against members of the Asian American community across Texas and across the nation all in the wake of the COVID pandemic. It's a surge we're still experiencing two years after the pandemic first began. If you believe you have been a victim of a hate crime or have witnessed one, you're encouraged to call the FBI at 1-800-CALL-FBI. Crystal?
27: There was anti-Semitic attacks, anti-Asian attacks, and um, homophobic attacks.
14: Lower Manhattan Assemblywoman Yulene New, who is now running for state senate, there, said it happened when white supremacists crashed her virtual volunteer organizing event Monday evening. She took the time to tell us about what happened, even though she was in the process of going through some routine medical testing, an ambulatory EEG, a periodic test to measure brain activity in those with epilepsy.
27: They started to uh, show pornography um, that had a lot of uh, racial epithets um, written on them. Um, They started to call me names um, and Asian was the one that was loudly said with long with white power, white power, white power.
14: New says she and her team were more worried about getting control of the event, silencing and kicking people out and did not get a recording. But several people on the Zoom confirmed what happened. Explicit sexual
16: language that implied sexual violence.
33: Racist death threats just being
16: spewed. No matter what your politics are, it's unacceptable to stoop so low. Just
33: horrifying, particularly in light of the increase of hate crimes against um, young
31: Asian American women.
14: That rise in hatred directed against Asian Americans, and specifically in the last few weeks, the killing of two Asian women, Michelle Go and Christina Yuna Lee, has shocked the city. News says sadly, what happened to her is a separate branch of the same tree, and it has become increasingly common since the rise of digital meetings.
27: I had uh, received messages from you know the people who. Uh, helped to run um, AOC's events and a couple of other um, legislators of color's events, and they say that it happens almost every event that somebody's trying to hack in.
14: This incident was reported officially to Zoom, and we did reach out to State Senator Brian Kavanaugh because this occurred in the course of a campaign event. His office and campaign have yet to get back to us
35: context of white supremacy gusty renegade in for another broadcast hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy today's date saturday february 26 2022 so i have been told this is our weekly compensatory call in dial in if you have thoughts observations counter racist suggestions to share the number 720-716-7300. The code 564 pounds Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Number again. 720-716-7300. The code 564 564- nine four three pound press star six one if you would like to participate not for spectators let us know if you have thoughts observations to share uh let's see before we get to the callers uh one we should be here uh this coming monday uh we've had racist interference sometimes uh victims just being discourteous and uh, wasting Gusty's time. Uh, We had at least two programs. Sarah Donahue was supposed to be with us uh, where she said she dialed in twice. I looked at the total time on the switchboard. She was with us for a grand total of like 120 seconds, literally. And I generally think of Sarah Donahue. I think of wasting our time. She does have a white parent. Uh, Wasting our time because When she dialed in, she said she got dropped from the call. Most folks, I've been a guest as well, where I've been invited to someone's platform to speak. If I get dropped from a call, I call right back in. She didn't do that. So all that said, we had a white person who uh, reneged on us late as well. But all of that said, uh, we should have a program this coming uh, Monday, white person white person in the UK no less now we should be on at normal time that's the even uh, crazier thing about all of this I didn't realize this person didn't really have you know with the internet if you don't really have anything in your Earl like .uk or something of that nature and depending on the way that you speak especially nowadays uh, there might not be anything that necessarily codes you as being oh this person is in France or Germany you might have to look really really close to pick out what you know part of the world this person is in especially if they're writing about US literature anyway so our guest for this Monday is a white woman I believe of course we will verify but I think this is a white woman and a white woman in the UK but we'll still be on at our normal time 8 p.m. Eastern 5 p.m. Pacific I didn't find out until like she had agreed to come on the program and everything and then I found out she was in the UK and I was like, whoa, so it'll be like one o'clock in the morning over there. Like, wow. Uh, and she said, you know, I'm normally up late and blah, blah blah I said, OK, right on, right on. OK, well, wonderful for me. I, you know, don't really like moving the time of the program and keeping it normal means that, you know, folks can tune in, participate, question a white person. Uh, but this white person specifically, she wrote plural reviews about Alice Sebold, white woman her memoir lucky that we just read in the book club right raping black male about to be made into a movie she wrote two reviews saying this is one of the best books i've ever read it is amazing everyone should read this and understanding the plight of women in a world of no count ogre black male rapists and all the rest of it uh, she should be coming on the program this Monday 8 p.m. Eastern 5 p.m. Pacific there's no update I've seen other white people I try I was boy eagerly like excitedly searching for white people to speak to about the book lucky and I could not where i had been working aggressively as I said to find some folks couldn't find couldn't find couldn't find and What I noted is that many of the white people who wrote reviews or did videos or whatever about Lucky, they've had to come back and do an update. Oh, man, that no count Seabold fooled us, man, she's lying, no count, ah, casting her out, she's been, cancel culture, yeah, lots of that. This isn't there, and as I said, this white woman is in the UK, so I suspect she might not be aware Of what has happened with regards to Alice Sebold's allegations and the book has been frozen, right? They're not selling it anymore. And the exoneration of Anthony Broadwater, she might not be aware because all of this happened like just literally, I think like two months ago, maybe a little bit more, two and a half months ago. Uh, And in the UK, I mean, this was big news, but I mean, if you're in the UK, yeah. Rape and Negro gets exonerated. That's probably not, you know, going to be in the front forefront of your thinking and priorities for the day. So even if she has, I'm super looking forward. Uh, I had wanted to chat with some white people who wrote about this book and who thought it was great at first. And just to let's metaphor, let's put on our literary caps, right? Let's review this here book because they use this book for Anthony Broadwater's defense to exonerate him. So let's go back and look at this book and see what exactly did you miss? You thought this was you thought the poem about her wanting to castrate a nigga? You thought that was great? You thought the part where she she says her theory is that this black male called his black male homie to come and give the most evil screw face look possible in the lineup while he looks all sad "Mm, woe is me so she picks the wrong black person you believed that? (sighs) what a wonderful way to wrap up Black History Month hopefully we won't have any issues tech or otherwise but Monday 8 p.m. Eastern 5 p.m. Pacific white woman in the UK we will chat it up about lucky her reviews of this book Uh, like I said let's be scholar literary critics look at this book given all of the information that we now have white women do it better so that's Monday 8 p.m. Eastern for people who were with us in the book club uh, for lucky which is recent oh man you should have some questions ready to like did anything stick out to you about her using the word Negro Lots of things to chat it up about. The missed identification. Her dad calling black people animals. Lots of things to super for Rick Changs. Rick Changs. That'll be Monday. Uh, So next, there were many, many disruptions. We just made it to February twenty one. Uh, 57 years since the assassination of Minister Malcolm Uh, 13 years uh, the context of white supremacy radio program has been on the air Uh, both of us so far have still failed in our objective to solve this problem that notwithstanding uh, for folks who maybe attempt to listen to the archives or dial in live or both There have been massive difficulties for the entire 13 years. More acutely uh, recently uh, folks said that they were having difficulties dialing in Sarah Donahue included Um, the white guest we just had on the program. uh, Mr. Cohen he dialed in on Monday and I think things were okay. I personally have been able to dial in without too much issue the last couple months or so but I know this has been a regular problem for the duration so let me know. You can always drop an email until at gmail.com. If you're having any issues and trying to participate, call into a live broadcast for the archives. Uh, there's been some sort of interference there as well. I normally like immediately when I say immediately, as soon as we rang up, thanks all for tuning in. Goodbye. I immediately get the best quality audio go to work to upload it it normally takes like 30 minutes or so for that process give or take 10 minutes or so but i normally immediately as soon as the broadcast concludes to go upload so within 30 minutes of the program being over uh it'll be uploaded and then it might take a few more minutes for it to be available online you can stream it or download but that's normally an immediate thing with Gus T. I try to take that seriously like 99% of the time, unless there's, you know, something pressing, you know, race soldier, imminent attack might have to relocate that type of a thing. Uh, But of late, I'll do that process. It'll show that the audio file has been uploaded and it's there, but it's not as it's not going into the stream. So whether you would download or stream at Apple Podcasts. Uh, or blueberry, or Pod Chaser, or Pod Bean, or wherever you might happen to listen uh, to the cows at Stitcher. Lots of locations. It's not going into the feed to be picked up by all of those different podcast distribution sites for whatever reason. So that just usual suspects could be racist interference, uh, could be something totally unrelated. Hopefully, it'll be resolved quickly. But that has caused a delay. Uh, of some hours sometimes you know overnight where it's just not going into the feed where I've tried repeatedly sometimes for hours and it's just not working but generally at minimum by the next morning it'll work or sometimes just waiting a few hours that evening it'll work but there has been some uh, disruption if you have a problem accessing either the archives or calling in or whatever the issue is drop an email until at gmail.com. I will do my best to give you some different uh, options. If you would like to participate or just want to access the archives much obliged. Uh, let's see. Next. Uh, one of the sites I always post the archives uh, via social media, Facebook, Twitter. That's really the only reason that I'm on any of these sites, Twitter at until justice, Facebook.com forward slash the problem is white people we have the Facebook group for the cows and all that so you can just check there you should see the archives uh, even for yesterday's broadcast neutralizing workplace racism Uh, incidentally for social media had this happen today had this happen pretty much on a regular basis uh, I'd almost say daily it might not quite be daily but it is frequent uh, where individuals online and some of these folks might be classified as white where they just have a non-white person as their avatar very easy to do right Anyway, but lots of folks will be online posting and somehow they will tag Gus T or post a message to Gus T talking bad about black people, name-calling black people, and these will be some of the same folks that'll be brother full of this and, you know, oh my goodness, we miss Grandcester Welsing and Mama Welsing and blah, 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 and all that, and then there's no count Negroes and coons. You have one time to name call somebody when you're posting to me tagging me anything of that nature to name call someone classified as black you're blocked I'm not going back and forth I'm not trying to investigate and all the rest of it that does not solve any problems I look at all of that is just super non-constructive keyboard thuggery really uh, to just sit online and name call black people Gus T Al Sharpton any victim of racism really I have never seen ever, ever where that solves any problems, improves the quality of life for even one black person, even the black person that's doing the name calling. Ten stops and all right. Let's see. A few things to share before we get to. The callers, listener-supported, counter-racist radio, invest if you think the cows is constructive. Hit the blog racism-notes.blogspot.com. My uh, review of the poem Alice uh, Alice Sebold's poem about castrating a black male is right there uh, to the top right of the page. You should see the PayPal button. Uh, Much obliged for all the folks who have invested for 13 years. Hopefully we have had uh, a baker's dozen worth of constructive information. What racism, white supremacy is, how it works, what it means to be classified as white. Uh, Directly beneath the PayPal button, you should see the link for PayPal Cash App Venmo. Uh, The Cash App address is cash.app Forward slash, dollar sign, D cows. Uh, again, enormous gratitude to all the investors who have supported us over the years. Uh, you can also visit our Amazon wish list. Uh, it is listed under Gusty Renegade. Uh, again, huge thanks all the folks who've nabbed an item or three uh, over the past 13 years. That said, uh, let's see from some of the audio segments that we heard they spoke with State Representative Sandra Scott uh, in Georgia about uh, Ahmaud Arbery Day to recognize a victim of white terrorism Uh, and she said that a part of this holiday is for her uh, her grandbabies she's a grandmother uh, for her black grandsons Uh, and she said uh, She wanted that, hey, this could happen to you so they can understand, go out and do the jogging, run the same amount of distance that uh, Mr. Arbery was uh, running when he was assassinated, murdered uh, by these murdering race soldiers. Uh, But I thought that was like, wow, being kind of stark about the element of black misandry within the system of white supremacy from state representative Sandra Scott. Uh, Let's see. Next. Uh, when they talked about the segment on Native Americans, very beginning racial classification confusion, they said that they went from having the number of individuals classified as so-called Native American being 552,000 to 9.7 million. Now, that is some new math for you. And they were going through. Now, how did this happen? Are people less ashamed of being classified as so-called Native American or are they you know less inhibited they've learned more about it we got all these DNA sites is that what's going on I am in Washington State one of those areas that they talked about where oh the casinos and that sort of thing yes they have all that sort of thing here and even have big events at the University of Washington where they have that and that is a big grouse like man some of these folks exactly what you heard from Mr. Fuller where it seems like did they just go and grab some feathers and now we got a race soldier with feathers who's saying that he is Native American like is that what this is like yes it seems like there is a lot of that Rachel Dozel right let's see the segment where they talk well, I have to move that t- to the metaphors, come back to that later. Uh let's see. The section uh the section where they talked about insurance. I thought that was so important. Uh they said that black drivers, safe drivers. What does that idiot say at the end of the program He says, sobriety would be best, so you're driving, you're sober buckled not on the cell phone right you need to be aware all that right so if you do all that habitually you still pay more for your insurance than a white driver I suspect it's probably you're paying more than even white reckless drivers how is that so standard in the system of white supremacy where they have reports where if you're a black person if you have no record And you graduated from school, you're less likely to get hired for a job than a white high school dropout. How is it that they have all of these type of statistics? You have to pay more. They had the one where black people were paying a a ridiculous property tax. They said black people in Michigan were losing their property and then find out that they were being taxed exorbitantly fraud. They might call that and then find out after the property has already been taken and what have you that might've been Renisha McBride, uh, at all as well, but another discussion, uh, but these types of situations all the time. And frequently we're at a disadvantage where you wouldn't have that information, the data to know, dang, black people are paying like five times the rate of insurance as white people. Why is that happening? And then places like Atlanta, that segment started with the, uh, is it riding dirty so many black people get locked up not for smuggling narcotics and trafficking and cocaine and raping white women so many black people get locked up for lack of insurance especially in places like atlanta like oh my god stuffed with black people no proof of insurance that one sticks out for me, especially here in Seattle. That doesn't seem to be a problem. Uh, I know non-white people who are not classified as black, but not white, got into an accident, not wearing a seatbelt, did not have insurance, not even proof of insurance, did not have insurance, got into an accident. It was their fault. You can get arrested for that. sort. You can be arrested for just no insurance in many parts of the world. That is riding dirty enough, much less you get in an accident, and it's your fault, and you don't have insurance. Oh, my Lord. No arrests. Take your ticket. Have a good day. Blackmail privilege. That's what they tell me. <laughs> Woo. Could have been Rodney King if that was Gusty Trayvon Martin, any other insert name uh, of any other uh, Jonathan Crawford the any other black male that you can uh, think of could have been a Rodney King type situation. You might not have even survived it. Amadou Diallo, blackmail privilege. Uh, let's see the segment they talked about oh man so this is visual so i already mentioned social media if you go i think any of the social media sites that i mentioned i posted about the report jose gomez III so this is in midland texas where he was at sam's club he didn't say hey this is a time i can rack up on toilet paper they got rid of those goofy limits i can be stocked up for the next pandemic rona 25 He didn't do that. He didn't go get hand sanitizer. He didn't do that. He said, uh oh, got these chinks running around here, spreading the Rona. Race soldier time. That's what he said. Jose Gomez, the third. Look at his photograph. I think this is his arrest photo. Do you think this individual would be accepted, classified as white? Folks gave their opinion, many of them via social media if if you have time you can circle his name again is Jose Gomez the third, Midland, Texas. This is recent, so it should be lots of reports that pop up, videos we can see what he looks like and all that. Do you think this person classified, accepted as white? We'll see what folks think perhaps as we go through. Uh let's see, the Zoom report, then I'll get to the metaphors. The Zoom report That was towards the end. Uh, Euline you in New York where they crashed the Zoom meeting with all this white supremacy racism. Man, oh, man, I've spent all this time bemoaning, grousing about the fact that we've had uh, very little participation, almost zero in the book club, Man in the Hot Castle, where folks voted, requested that we read this text. There is quite a bit of white supremacy racism in the book. In fact, this might be one of those books that you need to read it like two or three times to appreciate it but man oh man this is right there in man in the high castle in fact we just read this yesterday having some racist white supremacist they're practicing racism no good slopes and slant-eyed chinks and all the rest of that yep got it mm-hmm. racist white supremacist mm-hmm. then Within the same time, they turn. Ooh, look at that! Mm, those almond eyes and dark skin. Oh, that you lean you. Hm, mm, slant-eyed slopes and chinks and all that. oh, she's got that dark hair. Oh, she. I keep. I guess this is a week. Go back, Cal's thirteen years. So what have we been doing? One of them, uh, the book, the East, the West, and the rest of us. There's a whole chapter titled The Whole World is the White Man's Brothel. I think it's as not is the whole world as the white man's brothel. White man and white woman would be more accurate, but you get the point. They go to the Zoom chat room. Racism, Nazi slurs, probably put the penis up there. Remember that? That was 2020. Breaking the Zoom conference and then put the penis everywhere with swastikas. So they broke in. Now, this is another one. I just mentioned this yesterday because they had all the bleeps right where they were talking about the fire department. And I said, hey, I can't even like process what they're saying. I don't even know. You know, they they could be saying you all make great popcorn or we're going to, you know, firebomb the, the, the firehouse. I have no idea. Take all those bleeps out. Let's be adults. They said what they said. Stand by your work. And then we'll know what they said. That way we'll know better how to feel about all this. What should be done about all this? They put all those bleeps in when they were talking about, well, what did they say when they came into the Zoom conference? And what were they doing? And she said that the thing that I heard most consistently, they called me an Asian cock Sounding like Robert Chidlin. Childen, I'm sorry. Robert Childen. Asian cock followed by white power now come on now I mean that's for real you sound exactly like Robert Childan man in the high castle and matter of fact either way TV show or the book you sound exactly like him you're racist but you still want to go and sexually sewer some non-white females fetishizing Asian females specifically Mm mm-hmm Let's see. And they called it a separate branch of the same tree. I don't even know what that means. I'm segue into uh metaphors. I guess I could scroll back up since they did mention the hate crime statistics. I'll just scroll back up to what I mentioned last week for the compensatory call-in with the hate crime statistics. Uh that per two thousand twenty data, two thousand seven hundred fifty five reported attacks on black people. 274 reported attacks on Asians again this is not conflict amongst non-white people it's just pointing out like black get back the darker you are the more terrorism will be targeting you us metaphors now I had to move the entire report about Forsyth Georgia Forsyth County in Georgia to the metaphor section Wow, that was really horrendous journalism. I think that was uh, NPR, but I will double check. I'm very certain that that was NPR, but I'll double check to make sure I'm not, you know, strive for accuracy. Oh, let me pause. Let me pause right there and make sure. Yeah, that was NPR. Uh, I believe about a week ago I referenced the Charlie Brown series and saying that pig pen they consistently connect black people to trash and I said pig pen Charlie Brown is a black character pig pen is actually classified as white the black character on Charlie Brown is Franklin but he too is a victim of white supremacy Uh, I posted one of the shots where they have Franklin totally isolated even the dog gets to sit next to some people Franklin is all by himself. Nobody's with Franklin at all. And folks pointed out Franklin didn't even get a real chair. They gave him like a lawn chair. Everybody else has a nice sturdy chair. Like they're sitting at a dining table. Like they just found whatever was outside behind the shed. Yes. Give that to old Negro Franklin and we'll sit down and eat. Even the dog got a good chair. But yes, strive for accuracy. Pigpen is not classified as black in Charlie Brown. Back to Forsyth County and metaphors. Now, we just talked about Forsyth County yesterday. Bay Area mom said, or excuse me, Irie, strive for accuracy. Irie, she was saying that uh, they sent some of the black nurses, sent them out to Forsyth County. They didn't know where they were going. They didn't know anything about Forsyth County. And I asked yesterday, I said, I asked it both ways. They say black people, we are the ones that are PhD experts on racism, right? But we don't know about Forsyth County. Of course, not cows listeners, but you know. I said now do you think these white people do you think the ones that sent them out there you think they were ignorant about Forsyth County then we get to this NPR segment they started off they say there is a void in Forsyth County what does that mean can you be more nebulous more vague more nondescript they continue of course, we got another black male rapist. Yeah, yeah okay. Uh, they said that uh, some of the black residents feel that the town is sending mixed signals, metaphor, because one time they say they want to reconcile and do better, and racism is bad, and right, right, right. Then they said, well, let's teach honestly about what happened. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Sounds like that critical race theory here. Like we need to get the ban in books. Incidentally, everybody in Forsyth County, like they should just be mandatory. We read. Patrick Phillips, since that's a white man, we read. And I think he lived there, so he's a resident. Like that's, you know, hey, pfft, we read Patrick Phillips' blood at the root. Write a book report. That's what we do. So every there is no possibility that anybody in Forsyth County, really nobody in Georgia, is ignorant about what happened here. Especially no one classified as black. They don't want to do that, in my view. That's just we're dedicated. To white supremacy racism that's when we talked about a bunch on the couch you can go all the way back to 2010 Elliot Jaspin buried in the bitter water that's whole chapter by Forsyth County we had Patrick Phillips on the program uh, in fact Patrick Phillips let me give you a teaspoon what do we get from Patrick Phillips because I read this when he was a guest on the program in 2016 he writes when an interviewer interview when an interviewer in 2010 interjected oh goodness Lewis said, These are my experiences in Forsyth night in the nineteen thirties and forties. There was a sense of horror. Lewis was clearly frightened by tales of lynched men, black male privilege, hanged from telephone poles, and by the sight of black workers hiding under tarps when they passed through coming. But to her schoolmates, White Forsyth seemed like the natural an eternal order of things by 1941 when Lewis graduated from Forsyth County High most traces of the black community had long since been burned dismantled or silently absorbed into the property of whites of that former time, all that was left were fleeting glimpses visible only to someone who paid very close attention. Not long before she moved out of the county, Lewis remembered she was walking up to a friend's front door and noticed faint inscriptions in the stepping stones that led to the house. It was only when she knelt down for a closer look that Lewis realized The path she'd been walking on was paved with remnants of black forsyth. They were gravestones she said from a black cemetery. Someone white had dug them up, took them home, and used them for flagstones. what does it mean to be white? Now see, now that's another thing that you have to start studying when you notice that. Now, how many times do white people willfully desecrate the grave sites of black people? At some point you would have to start to conclude they're doing this deliberate. you don't accidentally get Negro gravestones and make a Footpath. That's not a mistake. That's what it means to be black. And one of the cow's words over our thirteen years on the air is necrophilia. Delectable Negro talks a lot about necrophilia. everybody if you live in georgia you should read patrick phillips blood at the root cows already got your study guide lots of highlights we talked about that patrick phillips we talked about that portion i read it when he was on the air you can go back and see what he said about that anyway so in Forsyth county now boy now you compare what they said with you start going in the details of what happened not just with the initial purge and then all the years since what's happened Oprah Winfrey even called a Negro now they said when it comes to are we going to teach about this in the schools and be honest and maybe read Patrick Phillips book they said we're going to put this on the back burner didn't I just say delectable Negro what does that mean are we making chitlins are you boiling cabbage are you talking about purging and murdering Negroes you know put that on the back burner okay then they say well you know it's not that we're dedicated to racism, white supremacy. You know what the holdup has been? The Rona. You know, that pesky Rona. And I mean, this is South Carolina. It's not like they got mask mandates and vaccine mandates. They were pretty staunch in their white defiance from the very or excuse me, Georgia, from the very beginning. Right. Governor Kemp, unless I'm in error, strive for accuracy. So what do you mean? The Rona is keeping you from being And I mean, hey, What was your, the Rona just kicked in in 2020. What was your excuse for all, I mean you had a hundred years to get this right. What was your excuse for all that time then? You were working on it and trying to get it to just right. You wanted it perfect and then the Rona came and messed up all the plans? Come on man. Patrick Phillips already did the work. What's the problem? Get that Oprah Winfrey footage. What's the problem? Let's see. They continue they said we got to talk about the elephant in the room that's a really tacky one that's another one if you, if you are observant why I say no metaphors how many times do people use that metaphor the elephant in the room I've never seen an elephant in a room I don't go to the circus I don't go to the zoo either or safari White supremacy racism is not Dumbo. Why is it when we start talking about racism? Now it's time we got to pull out that tacky free. Oh, we got to talk about the elephant in the room. They move from that one to. We got to take baby steps. You purged the Negroes and the. Report that I read yesterday also from Patrick Phillips. They said that the Negroes, sometimes they would give them a week. Sometimes they give them 10 days. Sometimes they give them 24 hours. Ain't no baby steps here. You got 24 hours to get out or you're going to die. Maybe we castrate you before we kill you. Maybe we castrate you afterwards. Stay here 24 hours and find out. That's not baby steps. So you purged all the negros in 1912. In 2022, we are talking about baby steps to being truthful about what you did in 1912 and the subsequent years. Maybe when we get around to what? 2052, 2072 we can get around to what teenage adolescent steps that right there is why the I say that all the time when you get the metaphors you can really start talking absurd like total nonsense because none of it is specific and they just continued right on with it that we're going to take some baby steps we think of it more as a marathon We started this marathon, I mean really 1912, it would go before that. But I mean, if we just want to use that, how long is this marathon? They put a man on the moon, put a woman on the moon, put a Negro on the moon. How long is this marathon in Forsyth County to just be honest? We didn't even talk about reparations. And then, then the best the best they get to the end they bring in my black brother Avery Head victim of white supremacy victim guaranteed qualified Avery Head said hey I want to take a moment to thank all of the white people and he was very specific he didn't say everybody that came here because it was black people there too they had pictures he didn't say I want to thank everybody he said the white people who came out who were not dissuaded by fear rabble rousers and what they had to say to you all that came out here i think that that is worth applause and praise and you heard the euphoria i'm a nigger. we've had the cows for 13 years nobody comes i want to stop right now brother gus and for your efforts i think we deserve a standing applause and praise but it is not that it is man, isn't he a coon?
28: Mm-hmm.
35: You up there confusing folks? Lord have mercy. Or they give you the golf. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think I could have done better. I <laughs> think that's something. Like really, white people are worth applause and praise just for showing up. Did they make a donation? did they bring books did they give like a thousand free copies of blood at the root tell me something free scholarships to the University of Georgia Emory tell me something they made like a a million dollar investment at Spelman tell me something Morehouse both still learning That whole segment right there, I mean, I could have picked out metaphors from all over, but I mean, wow, just right there. Baby steps, marathon, back burner, elephant in the room, (laughs) void, whatever that means. That's generally what you can expect when it's time to talk about white supremacy, racism, being an attempted counter racist. You shouldn't sound like that. Precision. Specifics details not cliches and race soldiers when you're not being specific anybody who is a master deceiver they love it we can use metaphors we don't have to be specific uh i will be super effective at lying let's be precise with our word choice i will prompt remind about the metaphors the number again is 720 716 7300 decode 564 943 pound press star 61 if you would like to participate if you're in a noisy environment if you could kind of get to a quieter area that would be great uh, if you could use your mute button that way uh, you can share use your five minutes say what you need then you can mute once everyone has had at least one chance to share, then you can unmute, return, share whatever you need. Much obliged. Uh, if you could take five minutes to share your thoughts, that would be great. Let us see. Uh, first few folks who dialed in with a hand up. Uh, if you all have commentary to share, line should be open. Uh, proceed.
17: Hey, go. Uh,
23: hello victim in new jersey yes sir hey how you doing um man i don't know it's it's just the world 2022 man it's 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 getting wackier um you know i mean i i really didn't see do know any reports on uh what's currently going on but um i've just it's just been real interesting that I've been with uh, you know just the whole overseas Russia Ukraine thing, and um, I was just kind of tuning into the whole um, CPAC, and it's 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 just it's it just man it just never ceases to ma- amaze me that you know with the conversation about the politics in the country and what's wrong with the United States race it's always there. I mean, you know, so, but black people are the victims. We're the ones that's can always accused of, you know, we're so focused on race. But, you know, I mean, in the midst of talking about Russia, Ukraine, CRT gets mentioned. <laughs> I'm just like, I'm like, okay, you know, bombs are being dropped over Ukraine. Um, you know, uh, the right is arguing with the so-called white left, and and some way, somehow, you know that 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 CRT just get wedged in there, and um and even with just kind of like looking at the reports that I've seen, I don't know if they're true or not because uh, there's a lot of propaganda out there. So to give you a quick story, I was today I was looking at a documentary on Ukraine, because they had a coup in 2014. There was a video of a tank being bombarded with Molotov cocktails. I looked online, and they're like, Ukraine is fighting back. You know, they threw Molotov cocktails at a Russian tank. But I was just looking at a 2014 uh, uh, documentary And that same clip is on a 2014 documentary, but it's being looped like it's something that happened recently. So I said, oh, man. I said, oh, man, white supremacy. I said, man, they are the masters of deception. So black people be careful with the information that you're seeing online, the videos that you're seeing online. Then it's just, you know, um, you know, I'm seeing, you know, pray for Ukraine. Then I also seen a documentary about these right wing paramilitary troops, uh, militias, that's aligned with the Ukrainian government. So I'm just like, I I really, you know, it's, it's, it's just very interesting. You know, once white people get to fight and the world has to stop. So, me personally, I'm just going to kind of, like, detach from all that foolishness, Um, but it's just real interesting, regardless of if the world is on fire, if bombs are dropping, if we're facing nuclear catastrophe, white racist Americans have time to practice some good racism. I mean, you know, Putin, CRT. I mean, you know, I don't know which one is going to destroy the planet first, but um, that's all I got.
35: Much obliged victim in New Jersey. Uh, Before you mute your line, are, are you doing physical therapy or am I mixed up with our callers?
23: Yes, yes, yes. I'm doing I'm still doing physical therapy. Yeah right yeah, on. So unfortunately yeah. So I'm I'm, you know, I'm just in the house soaking up all the uh the news and you know what's going on on the planet, you know. And and also I was one of those. I also kind of voted for the uh the the book for the book club. So I um I couldn't get through the uh the TV, the TV series. I couldn't get through it. Um but yeah, so um, and it's it's kind of hard. My my attention. I've been so distracted, even with listen tuning into the book club. I can't really keep up. So uh, you know, I'm kind of lost. But I was one of those that voted for the book.
35: Thank you for coming clean, sir. Uh, much obliged. Um, I, you you are the second person. I'm glad you shared that as well uh, about the man in the hot castle because. You are at least the second person when I posted online, like yesterday, I think were Tuesday, it's a Thursday, uh, asking folks who voted, why did they want to read this book? And you are at least the second person who said that they couldn't make it through the television program. So they voted for the book. I just find that even more fascinating. Like I cannot ever remember watching a movie or a TV show that didn't hold my interest. <laughs> I'm going to try to read the book like that is unprecedented at least in my life like I can I mean I have done the reverse I read the book and then went watch the TV program and felt whatever about it Uh, and I've watched a movie that I was so you know intrigued by that I went and read the movie Planet of the Apes or read the book Planet of the Apes but not uh, that's not like an endorsement anyway uh, I can only say uh, the man in the high castle might have to give an apology I am disgruntled about the lack of participation even though I understand it because it is not an easy book to read that said I think this is one of those books and he said he had a difficult time paying attention you have to really pay attention because it's not an easy book to read Uh, even just the language alone and like we're listening to the audio book so you're getting like sometimes you have people who are so called Asian speaking English, or even Japanese. Sometimes, uh sometimes you have people speaking German in the book. Then you have people speaking English. Then sometimes you have people speaking broken English, which means that like it's so much you have to pay attention to and World War Two history. And then people are lying because you've got spies in the book, so you have to keep track of all of that. Once you can kind of get everything together. The white supremacy element is amazing. Like I remembered uh, one of my friends from high school. He said sometimes you will see a book. The first time you read it, you may hate it. You might have to read it 10 times before you recognize like, wow, this is my favorite book ever. The book the book. I definitely can't say that about the TV show. Like, wow. I can only say quick because this is not the book club, but man, the TV show is so lame. I wouldn't make it through the TV show either. They so minimize the white supremacy racism that's in the book. One of the scenes that's in the movie, my favorite character, Robert Childan is having dinner. Exactly what I just said from the the news clips, the Zoom meeting. Uh, You lean you. uh, They Zoom bomb and then you... Asian cock so chill Dan is all trying to get at this Asian female and all the rest of it and they go have he, she's married they go have dinner in this scene he's calling Asian people monkeys and in his mind he's being all explicit like I'm a white man these monkeys and white people are not the same and i don't care that they did win world war two they are not better than me and i'm gonna stop even trying to curry favor with them and he sits up and gets an attitude and storms leaves their house and goes out chink this and chink that and slope this and ran ran all they cut all of that out of the tv series like i was i mean you can still see some of the layers but it's way the white supremacy racism is way more explicit in the book, although you will have to work your brain, computer, to get it a little bit. But anyway, the book is not bad. The white supremacy is there. Just Gus has been disgruntled because we haven't had participation, as our caller just admitted. Oh, but you
23: know what, Gus? Yes, sir. Gus, if 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 I could say not to take too much time, um, but I'm I'm definitely going to definitely catch up on the book, and I just think like it's it'll be fitting to catch up on the book. Basically, especially what's going on on the planet right now, you know, with with the metaphor of uh, I don't know if it's a metaphor with history repeating itself, you know, with, you know, Vladimir Putin being, con- you know, being considered the, the new Hitler and making Nazi Nazi kind of moves in uh, Europe and Ukraine is, is infiltrated with Nazi paramilitary troops. So. I was more or less interested in the book because, um, you know, I am kind of like a history buff, and I've always been interested in World War II. And me personally, just based off of some of the conclusions that I've come to with the evacuation of Nazi scientists and bringing them to the United States, I don't think the Nazis lost. You know, that's just just my opinion, so – That's why I was more or less interested in the book and I knew it would be more detailed. So that's, that's the reason why.
35: 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Almost done. That's so appreciative. Almost done since people didn't participate. Two sessions left, really one and a half. So almost done. It'll be in the archives. People want to catch up, give it another try and Yes, there's quite a bit you can learn about white supremacy racism in the book, not the TV show, the book Man in the High Castle. But you will need to work your brain computer. Uh, let's see. Other folks who dialed in with a hand up proceed. Hello.
20: Good evening.
35: Yes, ma'am. I read. Yes, it is. I. Um, good evening, everybody. Hold to
20: have. Um, I noticed um, driving um, and getting some new insurance that, um, well, the insurance company that I ended up switching to wants to monitor my driving all the time. They say it's to give me a discount for being a safe driver, but I think it's more so to monitor. And so after hearing the segment about insurance, Um, I'm wondering if if that may be a way I don't know it just seems like it's some kind of quid pro quo thing maybe they know that people are maybe it's coming out and people are more aware of the racism that's practiced with uh, auto insurance Um, and so maybe they're kind of um, using new tactics to look like oh well we're basing it off of how you drive but then they want to know they're monitoring you every time you get in the car. So I turned mine off after the first month or was it 90 days? Cause I just didn't want to be continuously monitored. And my insurance went up by $45. Um, even though I've been in no accidents, um, they sent me a check for about $30. Um, after a year of uh, service with no accidents and said that I would get 5% back, I guess for the total year, <laughs> I think, I think that might be fine to know. I don't know. Seems like it's less, but, um, I'm, I don't know. That's just interesting to me that, uh that's my particular deal, but, um, you know, just snooping on people. Um, Black folks. And if you don't have that going on, I guess what I'm trying to get around to is you're going to pay higher insurance because you're considered a higher risk because somebody's white and they say so. Uh, As far as the flight situation, and they were wondering who would handle um, crazy um, flight goers. I, I do believe it's the Home Department of Homeland Security. I do believe. I did finish a book that got into Homeland Security and some of their responsibilities. It was called the Torture Report, which was a truncation of um, the monitoring that CIA, FBI were doing uh, via the FISA courts. And Homeland Security was brought up and they were monitoring, um, the whereabouts of different non white people throughout the world, um, and knew, just knew just about all their whereabouts and who they were connected to. And, you know, they knew who had passports, they knew who had flown where. So I'm thinking they could handle it. Um, the other reason I think they can handle it is because I, um, was listening to this Albert album by um, uh, he's a white guy but he has albinism so he kind of lives like a black guy I don't know if that's practicing racism or not I'm I'm a victim but um, I thought he was black when I first heard him too but he's albino so he his name is Brother Ali I, I kind of like I really like his stuff so he flew over to Iran one year and he talks about it on this album and he he said that when he got back he tried to fly somewhere else domestically and he had four s's on his um his uh ticket and then he asked the person at TSA like what does this mean because they you know pulled him out of the line it was like oh you'll never be on a, able to get on a plane again and all he did was go over to Iran he didn't even like conspire with anyone um, and I can't remember what it stands for, but like secondary security you you have to look it up it's like four s's um but I mean, why wouldn't it be homeland security if somebody tries to open the door of the plane mid flight, which would if I'm not mistaken about physics and stuff, wouldn't that suck everybody out of the plane? wouldn't that do something catastrophic? I'm asking from, you know, cause I, I just, <laughs> I don't understand how they don't understand and how they don't know. Um, kind of still stuck on the foresight thing myself. And I do realize talking to some non-white people that, um, there's a sense of oblivion for some that they live in, in regard to racism. Um, There was a young man that was questioned by the police and he was handed over to the police by his school, 15-year-old, and interrogated. And the police convinced him to say that he was somewhere he wasn't, even though he could prove that he was actually at a a basketball game. And um, to me, it signals that people aren't talking to their children about racism and they're not telling them what to do in order to counter it once Once it's engaged upon them and, you know, it's easy for children and adults in the system to get set up because they want to proceed like it's not happening. Um, And I think that's all I want to say. I can't. Oh, workplace racism. I'm teaching a class on urban survival and white guys that was supposedly taking pictures for the yearbook lingered. During the class and I was asking the kids some questions and he kept raising his hand like he, I don't know, like he had, um, he was just acting hyper and stuff. So I was ignoring him. And then later he told a non-white black female that he was like, oh my God, isn't she so beautiful? And then she was like, he might not be what you think he is. And then I immediately realized I was going to have to codify myself even more talking to her because she's confused about racism. And um, you know they, you know they're very slick. They're very slick. The sophistication for some of them isn't really even that sophisticated. It's just when they input something that seems like uh, emotions, which I and to the point I think that they fake emotions anyway. You know, like the fake crying that they would do when they call nine one one and then all go, oh my god, you know. Like, it's easy for them to be like, oh, my God, I'm just enraptured, when really you were there to monitor what the heck I was saying. Because you've never heard anybody say this, and I wasn't about to stutter just because you're there, Mr. White Man. Um, I'll mute my line for now, and uh, have a great night. Thank you.
35: Much obliged. Irie in Louisiana. Uh, Let's see, I did my sleuthing as you were sharing. Uh, So I'm reading, this is news18.com. One particular event which can be equally irritating is your boarding pass getting a vicious tag consisting of four S's. S-S-S-S, which stands for Secondary Security Screening Selection is a stamp that is randomly given to passengers boarding an international flight to the U.S. If your boarding pass has the SSSS stamp, you're in for a full frisk even though you've been nothing but a good citizen. Unfortunately, there's nothing much you can do to avoid your boarding pass getting the SSSS stamp. In some cases, some people get this stamp very frequently. Now that right there, like, hey, at minimum, exactly what she's i remember that uh right after 9 11 like you had all kinds of people who were just randomly ending up on the no fly list with no explanation they didn't i mean they would even tell you that oh yes yeah, because you went to iran or you know you were hanging out with this person or you called neely fuller jr or you had the isis papers like they didn't even tell you just the year on the no fly list and you know that's that at minimum like they said well we don't we don't want to rush you know we got white people they didn't include that so we got white people who you know are doing all this trying to open the door on the plane and we don't want to treat them like they're some old no count dirty negro sand nigger terrorist I mean nah we're 10,000 feet in the air and you've got some white man that hey nigger boy you are not going to tell me to put a mask on that's not terrorism We didn't get to the door part yet. Just that alone. That's not terrorism. Then you go into trying to open the door up at 10,000 feet. Uh, I'm not afraid that we could all die in the next 60 seconds. (sighs) Why have I said that for about a year and a half now? Why have a no fly list? If you can get on the plane and do all that, I'm not going to wear a mask and nigga boy this and open the hatch and all the rest of it. If you're not on the no fly list, why is this even something that has to be debated? That should be immediate safety issue. Yeah, this is another one. If it was me, if it was Irie, if it was Al Sharpton getting on a plane behaving this way, we would be on the no fly list like today. Coon list, no fly list, any other list you can think of uh before i get to some of the other folks that dialed in uh let's see real quick the the insurance component uh like i said that's another one we wouldn't really know in terms of are we paying a lot more than white people and all the rest of it and then what are you doing with all this footage to you know make sure that i'm a safe driver and all the rest of it lots of things to be mindful about uh 2022 and beyond Uh, let's see Uh, other folks who dialed in if you have a hand up commentary to share lines should be open proceed greetings
0: everyone
35: heard both of you I guess we'll get uh, retired firefighter in Florida first yes sir
0: greetings everyone I uh, just wanted to uh, briefly talk about the way the term "justice" has been used was used on the, uh, the reports today. I heard it quite a few times, and uh, I, I I think I, I have I have in mind that that the term is much more uh if if not as efficient of what is being described on what happened i think justice should be at a higher understanding i put it that way uh the term justice uh i mean is justice going to be applied to after a person has been killed i think uh the term well i like i like the way that mr fuller uh his meaning i've adopted that meaning of the word justice a guarantee that people don't get mistreated most of the times that, that i heard the term the person has not only had the person been mistreated they've been killed you can't get more mistreated than that and uh there's no reverse in, in into that i think another term Needs to be connected with uh, such such events than justice. Uh, guarantee that people don't get mistreated. Guarantee that people who need help the most get the most constructive help. Uh, that is one of one of the uh, things that I noticed in the reports. Uh, that term, uh, how justice was applied to. Uh, certain instances instances that took place i don't know it what's in my another subject was in my mind about uh, uh criminal activity on on aircraft uh, the penalties need to be much much more severe for one thing I'm talking about ten years in prison and Upon coming out, you would never, ever, ever be able to use public transportation, even a bus, for the rest of your life. Well, it'd be kind of hard if you get on a bus, but definitely on a aircraft, you have to use your driver's license to be able to get on the aircraft, uh, train, that sort of thing. Uh Person, although I wouldn't, I wouldn't uh, go to the point of testing it out, but I think it would be kind of difficult to to open a door on an aircraft that's in flight because of the wind factor. Uh, it would be kind of tough, but I wouldn't want to. I wouldn't want to test it out. <laughs> Put it that way, but. Uh, Anyway, it it is a dangerous situation uh, to uh, be on an aircraft where someone is uh, behaving in that manner. And uh, they shouldn't ever be able to have that ability again to be able to get on aircraft again. Ten years in prison. No possibility of being paroled before and uh I think that would kind of like uh cause a deterrent into uh behaving in that way i I don't know of any severe penalties that people have if after all of this that's been going on uh since covid nineteen about people on aircraft uh behaving poorly I haven't heard any anything about any real punishment uh for that behavior. So I'm assuming that uh and and it's a situation whereas uh, it's not difficult to uh, identify the uh, the accuser because he's right there in front of a lot of people you know in, in, you know on an airplane. So uh yeah. I think the punishment need to be uh brought up a little bit more. That's all I have to say. Thank you. We don't
35: get punitive with white people, even when they're trying to uh, crash the plane at 10,000 feet. Incidentally, Henry in Chicago, I think might be up next. I was reminded the great Michael Jordan, when the bulls were in their heyday, they had a fellow on the team, Bison Daley, his name—he uh, changed his name, A.K.A. Brian Williams—but he was on the team. It is reported that in the midst of their championship run, Mr. Daley was on the Bulls' plane. I think in the playoffs, Michael Jordan, Scottie Pippen, Dennis Rodman, and all that. Uh, and he tried to open the door. They kicked him off the team eventually he finished out the season but yeah he you can't come back you try and clash to crash the plane with uh mike jordan on it yeah you you definitely you will be uh playing on the clippers or something next season severe penalties man severe penalties uh henry in chicago much obliged for your patience
8: sir all right uh thank you i, I you know what i never heard of this story that's interesting um uh, Surprisingly enough, uh, I used to follow the Bulls a lot during that time. Um, I wanted to talk about the, uh, not exactly what's going on in the Ukraine, but the coverage that is happening, because it definitely deals with race. Because when I look at the report of coverage uh, from the media, uh, and especially uh, outlets, uh, news media outlets that uh, cater to non-white black people. Um, I find that, you know, majority of the coverage is, you know, uh, opinions from Cardi B or somebody explaining the Ukraine coverage in the form of a poem or, you know, talking to us like kindergartners. And, and it you know, it's just typical, you know, black people don't know much about international politics. So we have to dumb it down like kindergartners or sixth graders. And like I said, I find this on media platforms that cater to a a non-white black audience. Uh, You don't see somebody like Gerald Horne on there talking about it. You don't see a Jamu Baraka talking about it, which could probably, you know, shed some light on it since, you know, both of them are, uh, you know, historians and political scientists. But obviously, you you, you know, they're probably, you know, too smart uh for the uh for the negroes to <laughs> to hear them but yeah I, I just i just feel like this dumbed down coverage of the ukraine and especially on social media social media is just very terrible uh especially you know i get videos of people talking about the ukraine in, in sixth grade or fifth grade terms uh but also too speaking of uh, media coverage of the ukraine uh, there is a, uh, a reporter that actually lives out in the Ukraine, uh, a non white black male. His name is Terrell uh, Jermaine Starr. Uh, actually, he's been on CNN uh, and other uh, mass media uh, coverages, uh, news uh, outlets. And he is kind of like their, you know, uh, uh, non white black reporter, I guess, uh, for these. Uh, these news outlets, uh, also a victim, you know, victim of racism as well. And what's so interesting is, you know, lately he's been, uh, uh, there've been reports about, you know, um, neo-Nazism, uh, within the Ukraine government and, uh, also in the, uh, Ukraine military. Uh, there's a battalion called the, 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 the ASVAB, uh battalion, which is, integrated in the ukraine military and they they have neo-nazi symbols and they have neo-nazi ideology as well Uh, but they're anti-russian so they're good with you know they're good with us but uh you know he he expressed how unfair it was to uh label you know the ukraine as a neo-nazi uh uh haven but what's interesting is uh, Terrell uh, Jermaine um, moved to that part of the world. Uh, he wanted to do some coverage on uh, racism uh, in that part of the world, and it's been, it's pretty interesting because he did he did a, he did an article back in twenty uh, I think it's twenty fourteen about racism in Russia, but he also did one in racism in the Ukraine, and he has an article that is actually uh, in the Washington Post called uh, A Cop in Ukraine Said uh, He Was Detaining Me Because I Was Black. I appreciated it. And this is in the, um, like I said, Washington Post, uh, January 2nd, 2015. Now, what's interesting is when he talked about, you know, how the Ukraine is being unfairly uh, a haven of neo-Nazism, I wanted to read this real quick because in this article he says, my acclamation to Eastern Europe's brand of racism didn't come immediately. I spent my first six weeks in Ukraine simply getting used to most extreme forms of anti black hatred. Occasionally I encounter young men dressed in black shirts and Doc Martins who would throw up the Nazi salute in my direction. <laughs> so so I you know, I was like, Wow, so you know, first, you know, he's defending this Ukraine government, but Back then they were throwing Nazi salutes. But uh, you know, if you haven't Gus, uh take a look at it. Uh, T- uh Terrell Germain, uh his uh his op ed he wrote in the Washington Post. It's it's real, it's real interesting. I think you would uh I think you would appreciate it. But uh that's all I have on my life.
35: Much obliged for sharing Terrell Germain. will check that out. I don't know what to say about that, like, uh global system. You get to Ukraine and they're throwing up Nazi salutes at you, like Huh. Hmm <laughs> like, man. Uh I will I will get the article and share online so folks can read that. Whole world man, nowhere to run. Uh strive for accuracy as I move along here. So I was one season off bison Daley got his championship ring with chicago and then hopped across the border and went to detroit uh, for the pistons uh so 97 98 season with the pistons Daley played in just 49 games the following season and his teammates began to notice changes in his behavior in one instance according to the new york times Daley had to be restrained by the pistons teammates from opening the emergency exit door on the team's private plane during a flight said he also suffered from depression so not with the bulls season later with the pistons but yes did try to do this during a flight uh, rest in peace bison daily uh, let's see much obliged henry in chicago uh let's see other folks who dialed in with a hand up i give out the number one more time 720-716-7300 code 564 Nine four three pound. Press star six one if you would like to participate. Uh, any folks dialed in with a hand up commentary? They want to make sure they get in before we wrap up soon.
8: Oh, by the way, Gus, I emailed you that article.
35: Oh, make it easy for me. Much obliged to me in Chicago. we nab everybody miss anyone commentary they want to make sure they get in
23: hey gus uh while, while people getting their thoughts together i just wanted to add something yes sir yeah um um another thing i just wanted to, i don't know if uh i came in late on the uh on the news clips but i don't know if the uh b- uh black justice uh, nominee was discussed. Um, I just, I kind of noticed some, uh, you know, you know, Twitter, you know, Twitter, Twitter is a very, very, very messy place. If, if I, if I can't say, but um, I think I'm seeing, you know, basically people talking about her, you know, in a tragic arrangement and um, you know, my issue, my, you know, my issues, I mean that's that's that all that gets a cowbell, but I'm just more or less I'm I'm just kinda over the first black this or the first black that. You know, I mean in the system of white supremacy, I'm just to the point where like that just doesn't impress me, you know. But um I've you know, I noticed uh I noticed that, um, throughout, you know, so um I don't know if anybody else um when, when having a conversation about her, I just, you know, I just find it, if it's in a realm of just kind of like saying she's not qualified, if she's not qualified for being married to a white man, I just think that, you know, the foolishness on Twitter with that amongst black people just, you know, I mean, I can't stop black people from, you know, the name calling and just kind of like just the, you know, just just you know, just attacking, you know, black people for uh thing you know, things like that. But um I noticed that this week and I just you know, I, I just I just find it it's it's just not solving anything. You know what I'm saying? It's it's really not. I think I think we can basically say that we are not for uh tokenism when it comes to black representation. Without, you know, just just doing the uh, the nonsense of you know dragging this woman to use a metaphor uh, because she has a uh, white husband. So you know that's just some things that I picked up on. And also, I lived in um, I grew up in Newark, New Jersey, and in New Ge- that was considered years ago as the car capital. And for that reason, if you lived in Newark, New Jersey, any of you was hit with just um insane uh uh high insurance you know so a lot of people would you know you had relatives that lived in another city outside of north um which was predominantly black you know you would have you you know you would change your address just to get cheaper insurance so you know and they they use the excuse of i guess the um high car thefts that was going on during the early 90s. But, you know, it's it's not going on now. So, But they still, if you live in the, in the city of Newark, you still basically pay a lot more than any other uh, area in the state of New Jersey. So I've experienced uh, targeted um, high prices based on, I, I would consider race uh, as it relates to car insurance.
35: much obliged color in New Jersey Uh, I remember that as well in fact uh, when I was in college it would be black people North New York New Jersey all of the northeastern areas uh, they would be trying to find more southern addresses for their insurance get cheaper rates Lots of things. And again, black people more informed about racism. I suspect the white people, the racists at the insurance companies, they would be the ones who would be really informed. Like, woof. we are exploiting these Negroes and they don't even know. And we heard that about taxes, too. I mentioned that they said that about property taxes, saying that's another one. You might have a hard time even getting records to find out like, wow, black people are paying like 50 percent higher property taxes than white people. How is that white supremacy, racism? Incidentally, the whole thing with uh, the symbolism and what have you and then black people talking trash like, hey, at some point it should be now. We sat around and did this for eight years with President Obama, right? We've done this for, what is it at this point? Decades with uh, Justice Clarence Thomas, Eric Holder. Insert the name of the black person that we are absolutely disgusted with. Marilyn Mosby in Maryland. Got her up on charges right now. Saying there are no count uh, coon and Uncle Tom traitor race traitor not trying to help out black people oh and then you married to this old white fella and all that certainly i've been very clear that's tragic arrangement should be trying to avoid that to solve this problem but i mean the person in tragic arrangement the non-white person is a victim that's not a reason to sit around and call them names and bash them I, i don't think anybody has heard gusty do any of that i've just pointed that out and what i said specifically was that would just be more evidence if you are classified as black You will only be allowed to be a member of the Supreme Court if you are married to someone who is not classified as black. That seems to be the rule. Just pointing that out. All the folks, black people, non-white people who've been on the bench, they are victims. But that is very common. Lots of fun. They were sharing that on my page today, calling uh, different victims names. I think Miss Katanji Brown Jackson was one sitting around. Calling her names and all the rest of it. I have not seen where that solves any of our problems. Even if you want to point out that is incorrect. There are terms already available for that that do not include name calling. Racial showcasing would be one. Tokenism even go but throwback with it right. Older ones. Lots of different terms that would not require name-calling and would focus the maldoer the evildoer is not katanji brown jackson she's a victim doesn't matter what she does if she gets she might not even be uh appointed you do have to white people do have to select you this is not just president biden said katanji brown jackson and that's it this could be a whole, you know, debacle and an embarrassment where they come out and find this. And, oh, she cheated on her test in kindergarten and stole five graham crackers. So, no, no, we definitely can't go there. Oh, and then her uncle, no count black male, we found out he raped a white woman. So, I mean, all of that is a waste of time. All of those folks, anybody that's engaged in all of that. Number one, you'll be blocked from Gusty uh, social media, what have you, Two, what should we do? Should we go camp out on Katanji Brown Jackson's lawn? protest caller names and what's going to be the result of all this once we do all that name calling and camp out on her lawn maybe we go key her car or whatever you like once we do all that what's going to be the result that will be an improvement for black people that's about what i would expect to hear nothing no name calling get to work name calling Miss Brown Jackson or any other victims of racism is not doing nothing do we have any other folks who had commentary to share before we wrap up
20: Uh, really quick somebody mentioned a Jamu Baraka having commentary on uh, the skirmish fight whatever um, over there He was recently on Black Power Media with um, Daruba Bin Wahad talking about um, what's going on and the confusion that white supremacy implements with conflict, armed conflict, and also advocating victims of racism to um, focus on uh, replacing white supremacy with justice by remembering, you know, political prisoners and you know, being involved in, in, um, activism and, and abolition, um, their words, not mine, cause I haven't had that, um, uh, what is it, defined fully yet, but, uh, basically counter racism from what it sounds like. And that was on Black Power Media. And I just wanted to add that, you know, I agree with someone I was talking to. This isn't our issue. This is what white people do. They fight each other every now and then. Um, openly. So instead of having, you know, being in the phase of cold war, fair metaphor, you know, it's just war, I guess. And ultimately, we'll see, you know, who's serious or who's going to do what. And, And really, there's nothing we can do. But just try to, you know, be prepared to protect our survival units. But this isn't our issue, ultimately. And that's all. Thanks.
35: Much obliged, Irie in Louisiana, Uh, Ajamu Baraka, guest on The Cows back in 2016. Uh, Talk about our 13-year anniversary. I remember when he was a guest on the program, I mentioned Mumia Abu-Jamal. you were talking about uh, people that are political prisoners, greater confinement. And uh, Mr. Baraka, who was at the time Green Party candidate for vice president, uh, he hopped in, dare I say, interrupted Gus Teed, say, We've got other brothers in prison, like our brother Edward Snowden. Mm. Victims guaranteed qualified. That'd be another. That was before we had our white guests only policy, but victims guaranteed qualified. Edward Snowden is not my brother. Uh, let's see. We are. Wrapping. Did anybody have commentary they can get in two minutes before we get ready to wrap up? Uh, Let's see. Yes. Last
0: thing. uh, Oh, excuse me. Yes. One last thing. Uh, uh, I find, I found out uh, about a couple of weeks ago that uh, Mrs. Jackson uh, uh, grew up in Miami, Florida. And, uh, you know, attended the. You know, uh, schools that were very close to where I uh, attended schools and whatnot. Just something that I found out uh, a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, that's it.
35: Much obliged, retired firefighter in Florida. Uh, Anybody, 60 seconds that they need to get anything in. Are we, everybody satisfied?
20: Um, Real quick, it's a joke, but I'm serious. So if you tell an Indian you're Indian and you're not Indian, will the Indian maul you because they compare themselves to theirs?
35: Don't they get wacky with the metaphors? I'd never even heard that one. Like, don't they get out of control with the metaphors? And that's comparing them to, to animals, too, right? Like, they're some sort of wild grizzly. and brrr, right? um, Come on, come on, come on. <sighs> metaphors, man. Metaphors. Uh, we will assume everybody is satisfied. Got all folks here. they mentioned they made a big to do talk about nonsense symbolism so they made a big to do about uh katanji brown jackson i'm i didn't make a big to do we were on the air live in 2013 when they gave the decision trayvon martin's murder trial when they announced the verdict we were live compensatory call and i almost stopped the news segments because they were giving the verdict live but i just waited and then we discussed it we were also on the air live when they announced that Supreme Court Justice uh, Sotomayor had been confirmed we had Ian Honey Lopez uh, on the broadcast that was way back in 2009 I didn't make a big to do about that either (laughs) I've seen it putting a non-white person on the bench doesn't really do anything to solve our problems they'll do lots of uh, symbolism Uh, they made a big to do this week about uh, February 22nd 2022 and said oh my god it's a palindrome can you believe it What does that mean? Do we get free tacos? Did I miss my free taco that day? Do you get a free bowl of soup? Because it was February 22nd, 2022. I remember there were folks that were saying, oh, we're going to go get married. We got married on February. And then half of those folks will be divorced by next year. Like system of white supremacy encourages a lot of just like nonsense for show and appearance and symbolism that is not, no value no substance at all especially once you do some authentic digging thinking about this anywho all of that said we will be here uh, white people permitting Monday uh, 8 p.m. Eastern 5 p.m. Pacific I cannot wait lucky uh, so this white woman she's in the UK she wrote two different reviews uh, about the memoir lucky uh, I'll post them you can check them out and read them for the folks who were with us in the book club read this book any white person said, oh I love this book it's great I I love it it's wonderful there's nothing to like about this book unless you are committed to white supremacy racism and you think of black people as animals and rapists because that's all that this book is about it's nothing else there it's not a cute story not going to learn anything it's not about empowerment it's just about raping negros and we should cut them up lynch them beat them up they're no good. You can't trust them. Rape niggers. The end. And I'm a virgin. Did I tell you I was a virgin and niggers rape me? I'm a virgin. The end. That's about the book. I cannot wait. I was looking, hoping I would get a chance to talk to white people who reviewed this book. So at least I get at least one chance. Uh, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. I already had a page. Of que- I had a page full of questions about this book and I didn't even crack the book. We finished it a month ago and I had to pay like 25 questions. I didn't even look at a single note, not a single highlight. Just what do I remember from us reading this book for two months? Now I get to question a white person about this. I didn't even read her essays. I just had 25 questions just from straight memory from the book. Oh, I'm excited. 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. White guests only. that said uh let's see sobriety would be best conditions of white supremacy uh lots of armed white people out and about this is not a time where you want to be reckless loud verbal confrontations with strangers you're out and about you should be thinking this person may be armed they may have an entire armed entourage at the ready if you left your house trying to get skittles tea And they left with they got their 3D printed assault rifle and all the rest, man. And you're by yourself. Exit. That is the strategy. If you're in a vehicle, said it before Echo, you're sober, you're buckled, you're not on the phone. We need all of our attention trying to minimize contact with race soldiers, Mark Furman, Amber Geiger and the likes. Uh, And trying to do the small things that we can to stay safe. All of that said, creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times, in all places, each and every time we are in contact with another black person it has been time replace white supremacy with justice immediately no name calling not even Katanji Brown Jackson doesn't solve any problems Cow signing out thanks all for tuning in
24: nigga you so brainwashed I'm a victim your brother problem. you're a victim ah, I'm up. a victim of 400 years of conditioning shut
28: up The man has programmed my condition. Mm -hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. (laughs)